Blog Talk Radio. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Sova and Joe Bono. It's Saturday. That means it's another edition of the Weekend Watchdogs. Mike Sova, Joe Bono. Uh, November the 7th, our first November show. If you want to listen to the show live on replay, go to WeekendWatchdogs.com. Send us a tweet at Mike Silva Media at jbono611. And check us out on our Facebook page and for free in the iTunes store. And joining me, um, post-World Series, we make the transition one final time. Joe Bono. Joe, um, obviously uh, for Mets fans, not an easy Sunday night into Monday and then a couple of uh, post-mortem days and a press conference, and now that it's Saturday and free agency has officially started, we are officially in the off season, and uh, we got to move forward. It's very quick. It comes, it goes. The postseason, it it thrills you, it 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 depresses you, and uh, it's gone. It's a very interesting uh, dynamic. Obviously, you're not over it yet, or uh, willing to let go yet, because you're wearing your Mets World Series hat still. And I, yeah. I told you a week ago I would never buy anything that said the World Series 2015 because if they lose it, I'm not going to want to look at it, let alone wear it. And uh, yet it sits proudly on top of your head this morning. Yeah, we just be, it's a it's you know the Mets for the World Series. I have I told you I I will I I always I know put you the, acknowledge everything. I know you told me you I, acknowledge I the a, further step the team goes. Exactly. So there you go. So they further go. Now, I mean, when I when you put up a 2015 National League Championship pennant, if you're a Mets fan or you take the shirt and you wear the shirt, it certainly, you know, has an odd feel. And I know I saw floating around. I don't know if you saw it floating around the Internet. There are, and who knows where they are now. Maybe they're in some foreign country where there's aid and people need clothes. There are 2015 World Series Champion Mets shirts that were made because they get them quick. You know, fans don't realize those shirts aren't printed in the ninth inning. Of the last of the game, while uh, the team is waiting to celebrate, those things are printed well in advance. So, actually, yeah, I think there's a couple of I'm sure there's yeah, I think the most depressed old. guy. I'm sure, the most depressed guy about all of this is Mitchell M- Modell uh, and all the stuff that he probably did not sell that he thought he did uh, that was in stock right. for the World Series in his store, and then obviously the championship stuff later on. So, um, anyway, listen, this this World Series was extremely odd uh, because to be in position three times to win games and to win none of those games I saw some probability numbers that the two ninth inning games uh, Mets had probabilities well into the 90s to win those games they had a probability of over 80 percent to win game four and did not win obviously Daniel Murphy's error uh, the key play in that inning and the probability to lose all three of those games was somewhat was somewhere under one percent <laughs> to lose all those three games where you had a one run lead in the ninth, a two run lead in the ninth, and a one run one run lead in the eighth, and they lost all three of them. All the concerns that I had throughout the year that we all were kind of putting in the parking lot all came out throughout those final two games. The Mets' defense has been bad throughout the year. 
Um, their feel for certain situations and the sloppy play has been a staple under Terry Collins. Now, that could be the kind of players that, that are out there, but when a manager consistently over a five-year period changes players, veteran players, rookies, and they all seem to lack the acumen to make the heads-up play, you have to question where that's coming from because that, to me, is an oddity when no matter where, or what organization they come from or where they're their uh, their roots are. They all have this lack of baseball acumen. Um, we knew the bullpen. Was oh, what are you referring to there? Familiar. What are you referring to there? Well, the do to throw. You know, that's just a panic move. He made I mean, a bad a throw. throw. But if you're, he, he threw the ball, but he just made a bad no, throw. He, he just had to make an throw. accurate throw. He rushed I mean, yeah, the throw, the point, but it's not mean. about bad baseball acumen. Right? He knew where to do with the ball. I mean, Wright made an instinct well, play. Good, the infield in that baseman. situation. A makes a better throw, but away. dude is not a good thrower to begin with. I mean, there's been stories, uh, there's a New York Post stories about the uh, you know scouting report and the Royals scouting report on the Mets was make Darno throw, make Duda throw, and that's what he did. And look, and that might have been in the, the back biggest... of mind of Hosmer's mind on third base. It may not have been, but a good throw gets him out. It wasn't like he didn't throw the ball there. Listen, there was a lot no, of things wrong with ball, that play. Look, an uh, average first baseman knows to take a you know. You know, take you know, gather yourself, throw the ball. I mean, you should be able to do that rather quickly if you're at the big league level. Um, but you know, look, spur of the moment. I understand that. And then most importantly, look, this is no surprise. And I said this in 2012. I said this a lot in 2013. I've been saying this since the Mets were 150 games out of first place. Terry Collins has no feel for a bullpen in a game, and he showed it to you again on Saturday and Sunday. Now the Matt Harvey thing, I'm not going to really critique him for because I thought that was the right move, letting Harvey go back out. Once he walked Kane, you probably need to then say, hey, I have a short leash. I think his indecision in that moment, the deer in the headlights feel, is very concerning. The night before, what happened in that eighth inning is inexcusable. You have to have a quick hook with anybody not named Familia at this point in the year. Now, this is not the point in the year to play games. This is not uh, July where you're trying to build Tyler Clippert's confidence that he have him later in the year. Now, this is the World Series. And I think Ron Darling said it best that in the World Series, in the playoffs, in these short series, you play the hot hand, you play with who gives you the best chance to win. The thing that drove me crazy is that in the Dodgers series, in that decisive game, Collins did exactly what you wanted him to do throughout the last two games. He went to Noah Syndergaard, and then he went to Familia and said, I'm not messing around. And we had this conversation then last Saturday, is that if the ninth inning Friday was that much of a, a reason why he would not be available throughout the next two games, then why in God's name did you pitch him? Now, I don't believe that. I think you that's a throwaway line. You're going to tell me 15 pitches at this time of the year? I mean, I'd love to see the kinesiologist tell me how 15 pitches, and I know they warm up on Friday, how that, at this point in the year, is going to make a hill of beans difference from him pitching two innings on Saturday. That's where the series was lost. Not Sunday, Saturday. Because you know what, the Royals played a lot. But you know, you think Hosmer played when it got to three one. Loose? When it got to three when one, the listen. When the, when the series got to three one, when the series got to three one, and I think that's why a lot of Mets fans, myself included, handled Sunday's debacle as well as they did, because you knew that it was going to be a monumental task to go into Kansas City and win both Game Six and Game Seven, despite having Degrom and Syndergaard on it the mound. It could have been done. It would have been nice to see the opportunity to see what would have happened with your best pitcher on the mound for game six. 
um, to try to force a game seven and then anything happens. That's the way people were thinking. But I think, like you said, the opportunity with all the momentum they had with winning game three in decisive fashion, with having the lead, getting a good start from Steven Matz, and having the lead, and see Addison Reed throw another shutdown inning like he had been doing uh, in the seventh inning. They hit the ball hard. Mike, he they hit the ball great. hard. Mike, you stop it. You are so annoying with this stuff. He picked up Joe, one, they two, three the innings. Hard off he had pop-ups. That's not a no, shutdown inning. No, I didn't. It was a shutdown inning. On it Sunday? Was easy. It was easy, 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 easy inning. On I remember Saturday. a few line drives. Game I remember. I'm trying. Maybe I'm missing the wrong day. I, there was line drives there uh, all over the place. Game that three? Inning. It was one, two, three inning. It was easy. No, and they I'm went on to the eighth. Four. All right, we're talking a different. I'm sorry. I thought we talked about I'm, I'm talking Saturday. Saturday night, game four games. Game Sunday, right. Reed obviously got bombed after the Cologne. After the Cologne no, base I'm hit, they gave him the. But Reed has been, look, regardless of the line drives, Reed has been good. You're right. Reed has been good. Clipper, I'm just Mets, saying, Clipper, every Mets fan has watched these games and watched the end of September is going, Tyler Clippard is. Hanging change-ups left and right. Every big swing you think is going to end up in the gap or over the wall. And yet Terry Collins and Dan Morthen somehow are watching film and watching this guy live and thinking the way Tyler's throwing the ball. What? He couldn't get out of any inning. Even in the game one, remember, he couldn't get That's out why of the inning. That's bad manager, though. So how is he That's your eighth-inning guy manager. if you can't get him into three outs? Um, so, yeah, the Yo. Clippers thing, I mean, the amount of text messages I got – so like Clippard's coming, they're keeping Clippard in the game right now. Clippard, and then the first walk, you like get him out. Second walk, what is going on? And then obviously, you know, Jerry's Familia is going to have three blown saves in this series, where really it was only one blown save because he had no opportunity, right. pretty much, to actually get out of the games in games three and uh, games four and five. Right. No, I, I didn't think I was very disappointed from the minute he got here, even when he got people out. Clippard wasn't the missing bats reliever that I thought they were getting, that you saw in Washington. Maybe he's hurt. Look, a lot of injuries are coming out now that no one knew about. Michael Kadire with the core injury. I uh, know we know Lagaris has been hurt. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. That didn't if, impact him, though. Know, Granderson, I mean, we saw you know everyone panic before the World Series with a picture on what was it, Instagram with his thumb all taped up. I mean, look, everybody gets injured. And, and You know, Clippard, either he's the miles have caught up. He's got a funky delivery, and uh, you know eventually things go. Or you know maybe that back injury was a lot worse than anyone thought. I have a hard time believing all of a sudden in September he had the back injury. It might have been something lingering that all of a sudden started to take its toll when they used him a lot in August. But even when he was getting people out, he was very hittable. And that's the thing. I know you get mad when I say that, but when I see a one-two-three inning and I see line drive, line drive, hard fly ball. Okay, great. You got out of it, and that's part of the game. But that process doesn't inspire me that it's repeatable every night. You know, when you see guys like Wade Davis and uh, and Hochever and the way they go through lineups, that's a repeatable process. you got to miss bats. Mets relievers, even Familia, they don't miss enough bats. If the ball gets put... Oh, when now we're criticizing tell... Familia, Mike? Mike, stop it. No, I mean, you sound ridiculous. I'm we're not gonna criticizing Familia, one of the most dominating relief... Uh, seasons in Met history because he doesn't miss enough bats. Trust me, he's a strikeout pitcher. We don't want him not. throwing 30 pitches trying to strike out the side every game. Okay? He's no, going to dominate that. And get but a leading, up ground Familia, leading up to Familia, they don't if you want to, we're not, But we're not arguing about that. Tyler Clippard was not good for the Mets from September 1 on. 
And the fact that he right. kept on going to him as the eighth inning guy did not make sense. Because we would it's see Addison Reed throw one, two, three this innings. We would see Hansel Robles pitch out no. to it. I would have felt better with Robles in the seventh and Reed in the eighth and have Clipper nowhere near a tie game. Joe, I predicted this outcome two years ago with this guy. This is who Collins Mike, is. Why it. is everybody Mike, surprised? Terry Collins did a good He's job, Mike, outside of that one move. Okay, the Harvey did a good move, job. Everyone wanted you him to do that. Le- Everybody the, you, wanted him to do that. In the biggest moment of the year, he did a good job. He did a deer in the headlights in the biggest moment when the team needed somebody to make a you big move. A, he this is what you do, Mike. This is what you do. This is what you do. As soon as they go sour, all of a sudden, I told you this, I told you that. You say a bunch of things and then just pick and choose the ones that go your way and then make your argument for I'm you. I'm not picking. Okay? Joe, he's been a the bad manager all years for the bullpen. He did a fantastic job in the, in the first round, a great job in the second round. What was his mistake? He had, he had Clippert as the eighth inning guy all postseason long. It did not cost him a game. So played, instead of yeah, going, no other guy hasn't been looking good, he decided to go with it again, hoping to get him through the eighth inning. Okay? Did not work this, out. Okay? Did not work the out. Same guy. The next night, all wanted Harvey. If it was a one-run, let me finish. If it was a one-run game, Harvey would have been out of that game after the walk. Okay? He was not, I think because it was a two-run lead, and he goes, you know what? Even if he gives up a single or even two singles here, right. he still could get through this game on a half a million waiting. Did well, not Harvey expect to give tough. up the opposite field double to Hosmer. Okay? That all of a sudden changed the entire complexion of the game. I have no problem with him. Well, the indecision I have a problem with was Harvey talked himself back into that game. That tells you he's indecisive. Um, I criticize the fact that there wasn't a plan for that ninth inning other than let me see what Harvey does. That's not, that's not a good way to manage. The series was lost Saturday night, and it's inexcusable there because... There was a plan. There was a plan. He's a plan. He said in the post game. I was not going to win. No point to take him out. Series. He said it in the post game. There was no reason. If I was going to put him out there, there was no reason to only give him one batter. And it was a two-run lead. There wasn't. Let him try to get through the inning. Seen him do he that felt before. that way to get him I, there. I don't know why all of a sudden now that's, that's the Terry Collins manifesto. That, what, I've seen him do that before. I've seen him piss away pinch hitters and then uh, let pitchers hit and then pull them after three pitches the next inning. I mean, I've, I have no idea what to expect. Out of, you know what? At least I knew what to expect out of Ned Yost. He went out. He knew he had a chance to put the series away, and he put his closer in. Collins had a chance to get back in the series, played games. With the lead? One wins, wow, one that was so hard to do. He had a lead. The guy hadn't pitched I, in three the, days. The night of the next step. But the Collins had the lead the inning before and didn't do the same thing and lost. There's a difference right there. One guy goes to his closer, the other guy doesn't. The other, one guy doesn't mess around, the one guy does. Well, you said that. You agree. Collins managed like it was He had no reason to be in the game. 9-3 on Friday night, okay? I don't know why. Maybe he got spooked out by what happened with Eric Goodell in the Cubs series, whatever it was, when Familia had to come in that game as well. But he just wanted to get a win on the board in the series and decided to put Familia in there. And that, for some reason, they were saying, well, we don't want to use him for two innings in game four because we're going to probably need him again in game five, so let's try to get him only one inning in game four. He was looking best-case scenario, but really you can't worry about a game that you haven't won yet. You need to win the game and then win about tomorrow or the next day. And that's the mistake. But even with the mistake, Mike, if Daniel Murphy fields a ground ball, if Lucas Duda throws a ball somewhere in the vicinity of Travis Darnot, they might have won both of those games. They likely right. would have won both of those games. Right. That, that, they don't, I, I'm with you on that. 
look, the only way you're going to solve this problem with this manager, because he ain't fucking... I just can't he, believe he you're he making this about the manager today. I just can't believe... I guess I should believe it, that you would make it about Terry Collins. You have to give him... You have to give him a paint-by-numbers bullpen, where this is your eighth-inning guy, this is your seventh-inning guy, they this gave is your him closer. That. They gave him that. You just didn't no. like the guy that they had in the no, eighth No, no, when the, when the playoffs they came gave around... They the paint-by-numbers. They didn't have... They oh tried all... Joe, they were trying people out as situational lefties in September. Your bullpen's not like the settling. last month. The last month by of the year. Like the situational lefty, the situational lefty did not give them any problems the entire year, the entire postseason. There was not one situation where they were like, "Oh my God, there's a lefty up here. We have no lefty in the bullpen, and this guy's going to hurt us." Jonathan Neese was really good in that role in a couple different times. Right. It didn't come back to bite them once. Come September, it was Reed. wasn't any good. He wasn't reliable enough. Well, they, that part of that is, is how they, they've never been able to build a bullpen. That's on the general manager. But here's the other part. Sometimes bullpens are greater than the sum of their parts. Guys like Tony Russa, who, who know how to put guys in positions to be successful. This manager doesn't look. Joe, it's okay. He's coming back for two years. The, I hear that how the, the, the clubhouse loves him. Great. How, you know, he's, he's beloved. He does great job handling the media. I'm not disputing any of that stuff. I think it's a little bit of a fake tough guy act, but that's me. I'm not around him every day. He can't manage in game. He hasn't shown in five years that he can manage in game. And you're going to tell me that in a big spot next year, in the same spot, that he's going to be able to view the game, the same game you and I saw from our home watching on TV, and he's going to make the right move? Oh, I'll bring in Familia next time. Well, well you know. That's uh, that's a real tough one. Bring in my closer the last three games of the year when I really time. need. He which did he do it did. What you said it. He did you said that it in the Dodger series. Right. All he had to do was did do it at certain times. Early. What? He did do it at certain times in Game Five against the Dodgers. He did not use Familia Game Four. He had an off day in between Games Four and Game Five, and he went to him for a six-out save. Okay, which he time. didn't do during Joe the regular Curry season all at all. Time. I understand that, but Familia does not have a track record of Mariano Rivera. Then, in Game 4, he used him in Game 3. That certainly impacted Game 5, because he felt, I can't go to this guy for two innings in Game 4 and have him ready to go for a three-plus out save potentially in Game 5. He gambled that he was going to be able to get through the eighth inning, hand the ball off to Familia, and have him for whatever he needed in Game 5. That was the mistake. You win games, you take each game by itself, and you worry about the next game the next day. That's the mistake. You don't know. You could get blown out in that game. You could win by six runs. You don't know what's going to happen. So to not use your closer in a situation where you can get the series tied at 2-2 because you're worried about having him potentially for three-plus outs the next day was the wrong decision, especially when the guy you choose on the mound is Tyler Clipper. I'm. I'm not. You're. 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 We're agreeing on this. You just made it about the manager. The manager blew the series. Now, not the only way. The manager blew the series when the closer gave up a home run in game in game one. When the second baseman had the slowest grounder since Bill Buckner's grounder ever at a playoff game in Met history go underneath his glove, and the first baseman threw a ball into the third row when he had the guy out by you know five feet. Well, let me rephrase this. He didn't and the put Mets had, what, three his hits? closer. You just said, you just said, 
Familia didn't deserve three blown saves. He only deserved one. I agree. He didn't put his clothes in a position where he could be successful. But, you know, it's easy to say, okay, here's the bases loaded, nobody out. Here you are, closer. Clean up the mess. These guys aren't God. They need a margin of error. These are big league players on the other side. You know, that, that to me is the thing. If he, I thought, this is foolish me. I thought after the Dodger game, I was impressed with Terry that night. He went to Syndergaard. He went two innings to Familia in a must-win game. I said, oh, maybe the guy gets it. It took five years, but maybe he gets it. And here we are two weeks later, a move that was – and if you and I could see it at home, and I understand we don't have all the information about Familia's health, I doubt, I doubt that he would have been unavailable for a, uh, a game five. I doubt it. And if he was, then shame on them for mismanaging him because there's no reason for that. Then Friday's even more of a fire. Friday, then, is the reason to fire him if that's the case. And all you guys love Terry. Oh, Terry's great. Terry, what is Terry? What is Terry so great about? What has he done that uh, uh, fifty other managers couldn't do? Oh, he's great with the clubhouse. Well, that's like the job. If you can't, baseball is the only sport where managing people. When you're a manager, is oh my god, he does a great job. Well, then stop hiring people who have no personality and can't deal with people. Maybe if they, you know, they actually looked at those things in the interview. But you got a million different cooks in the kitchen and a bunch of entrepreneurial owners who, who couldn't know their you-know-what from their elbow when it comes to dealing with people because they're up in the Eiffel Tower. The only reason this guy's listen, got a job is I'm, I'm not let's, saying let's things fair. didn't work. Okay? I'm not saying they couldn't have oh, taken God. a different route, obviously. If he probably had to do it all over again, what is it? Don't pitch him game three, six out save game four, start the inning with him in the ninth inning game five. Uh, but but see, this to me is obvious stuff. This is, this is not like clairvoyant, oh, my God, look at what a great lesson we learned here. You know, to me, it was obvious stuff. Now, look, Joe, bad defense, lack of fundamentals, the offense being feast or famine, these are all things we were concerned about. Anybody who's a Mets fan that's not uh, acknowledging that these things were concerned throughout the summer, even after the 31st, is not being honest with themselves. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, are you surprised that the offense is feast of famine? We've seen that. We saw them let lousy pitchers in September piss away the home field advantage. September was I can't believe the Mets hit a home run in every single postseason game. I mean, if you look at what this offense was and what it ended up being, um, it was 100% feast or famine. And you go back to game five, um, you know, one nothing lead, bases loaded, nobody out with Cespedes up. You get one run that inning. One run. All right. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We are going to start to look forward. Uh, Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal, Mets Beat Reporter, will be uh, joining us in just a minute. Later on, second hour, we have football. Seth Walder of the uh, New York Daily News uh, will join us. Uh, Ethan Levy, Gotham Sports Network, a little new contributor, will chime in about the Giants. But we're talking Mets this first hour. You are listening to the Weekend Watchdogs. Mike Silva, Joe Bono, taking you all the way up to noon, the number 646 8187. We'll be back talking Mets baseball with Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal right after this. From my standpoint, it was a, it was a successful season for us. Not as successful as it would have been had we won the World Series, but nonetheless, uh, I think we have as an organization a lot to be proud of with regard to this year. You know, we all want to win the World Series. We didn't, but that doesn't take away what we accomplished in the season, and that was uh, tremendous excitement in City Field and a team that we think in the future has got a great chance to win. So thank you so much for this opportunity, and we're going to move forward. And, and uh, certainly starting two days ago, 
prepare for a successful 2016 season. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. All right, we're back. Mike Silva, Joe Bono, Weekend Watchdogs here on this November the 7th. And joining us, uh, you know him from his work with the Wall Street Journal covering the Mets. At Jared Diamond on Twitter, Jared Diamond. Jared, Mike Silva, Joe Bono, I know after a long season, the last thing you want to do on a Saturday morning is talk more Mets, but we appreciate you taking a few minutes here. Uh, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. The season never ends. The offseason is just That's the true. second season. That's right. I mean, and here's the only disappointment I have is that it was Vorkanoff and not you that caught Sandy Alderson the other day. I saw the video. I expected you to jump in and do a little uh, EMT work over there. Huh. You know, that was a, it was really a terrifying moment i was sort of toward the back of the scrum which was starting to wind down so i actually didn't even see him fall because i was behind the whole wave of other people someone asked a question i hear him but he doesn't respond right away which is not unusual he tends to talk slowly and think carefully before answering any questions and then everyone starts screaming so it was it was a wild scene i'm just glad to hear he's doing a lot better totally agree and it's kind of is in line with what we saw throughout the season. And to start off, before we get to the nuts and bolts here, we're thinking about this Mets season and what's strange, and I'm sure you being there day in and day out may feel the same way here. If you think about April and the start and what went on the first three, four months, it's almost like a, another season years ago. Then you have the post 31st, which is another season. Then you have the playoffs. It's like you have three or four seasons within a season and it's almost like April seems like a million years ago. It, it was an odd year. It was obviously it was a good year. It didn't accomplish the ultimate goal. But certainly, I think for someone on the beat, it gave you a lot of material, and it was interesting experience nonetheless. That's for sure. It was a just a crazy year. It, like you said, there were so many facets of the season, starting with that 11-game winning streak in April when everything looked so bright and there was so much excitement to the terrible stretch we saw into the summer when they couldn't hit. They were last in the major leagues and runs scored, and there was so much anger at that point because I think the fan base believed or was concerned that the Mets were going to waste a good team, a team that had a chance to really do something, and they were going to let it go by the wayside due to inaction. Uh, and then the trade for Ioannis Despedes comes and changes everything, and the mood changes, and they go all the way to the World Series. So the emotional roller coaster this year must have put fans through I can't even imagine, just from the excitement to the complete anger and frustration to that euphoria in October. And, Jared, despite all those ups and downs and peaks and valleys in between, and, uh, you know, you tweeted this out, and I could not agree more. When you look at the season and say, who is the best best player, most consistent player, really the team MVP for the year, and into the postseason, it, it was Curtis Granderson. And you had some of the numbers Played in 157 games. He was there for all of it, 26 home runs, and then you find out the torn ligament in his thumb and the way he performed in the postseason. I think a lot of people were unsure about this contract and this signing a couple seasons ago, but he kind of put all of those doubters to rest with his performance this year. Yeah, I think people saw him last season and were disappointed by his first year with the Mets, and understandably so. He did not play all that well. He was inconsistent. He was streaky. 
And this year he was the one guy from April through October, really, into November that you could count on. Of course, you understand that has changed everything. He was the one who carried the Mets into the playoffs once they fired him. But nobody was there every single day the way Curtis Granderson did uh, was all season long. And I think it really surprised a lot of people uh, just how good he still could be because we didn't really see it in 2014. And now you know, going into next season, I think you have to feel pretty good that he's still capable of giving you decent numbers. Still has two more years left on his contract. He's getting older. Uh, but there's certainly reason to believe he could still perform at a reasonably high level moving into 2016, too. Jared, I thought this was a great group of guys. Um, it seemed like they, you know, I know the camaraderie thing could always get overblown when you stink. It doesn't matter how much you like each other. But even from your perspective as a reporter, I thought it was a pretty good stand-up clubhouse, a lot different than the John Roush, Frank Francisco uh, nonsense or some of the personalities that, unfortunately, when you're in a rebuilding phase are, I guess, a necessary evil, so to speak. Um, very rare that, at least from my point of view, that you had 25, 30, 35 guys that, for the most part, it looked like they liked each other and that, from your point of view, you were able to uh, have a pretty good relationship and enjoy covering them. So, I mean, of course, winning uh, cures everything, uh, obviously. The, the clubhouse uh, atmosphere certainly ebbs and flows as the team did. But I think really what changed a lot uh, chemistry-wise, clubhouse-wise, was David Wright coming back because he just makes such a big difference in that room. It, it's very palpable that when he steps into the clubhouse and is there every day, uh, how the vibe changes. There's, there was clearly a void when he was gone, and guys tried to fill it. You saw Daniel Murphy trying to step up uh, as a leader. You have Michael Kadire trying to fill that role. But, you know, you have to perform at a high level to really be respected. And Kadire while he's a great guy and was a, a big leader in that clubhouse, he didn't play as well as the Mets had hoped. Uh, so when David Wright came back, uh, you could just sense everyone said, okay, we have our captain back. Let's, let's go get this done. And obviously they did. Weekend Watchdogs, Joe Bono, Mike Silva, Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal, Mets beat reporter is our guest. Follow him on Twitter at Jared Diamond. So the Mets do extend the qualifying qualifying offer to Daniel Murphy. Not sure if that was the plan going into the postseason, but it certainly was the plan after the postseason. What are your thoughts on whether or not Murphy would take a long look at this thing and actually accept it? I know people are thinking the Mets will get a first-round pick, and you know even if they have to go out and sign another free agent and lose a first-round pick like they did with Kadire, they'll get it back with Murphy. But is there a chance that Murphy, you know, the other offers out there might be good, but close to $16 million, and a chance to then get more money after that uh, might be too much to pass up. What's your thoughts? Yeah, you know, look, no one's ever taken a qualifying offer, and that's an important fact. And I think the general belief around the industry is that eventually somebody will, because we've seen what happens to some guys who have the qualifying offer tag on them, and then they have trouble getting another contract. And it is a lot of money, close to $16 million. Uh, but it's just very hard for any player to turn down – you know, four years at 10 or 11 or $12 million a year, whatever Daniel Murphy is probably going to get on the open market. And I also think in Murphy's case, he probably feels like his value is the highest it's ever going to be right now. And it probably is because of the postseason he had. Yes, he gets his $16 million this year and gets another chance next season. But the, I find it hard to believe that he'll have value uh, going into next offseason that he has right now because – of the heroics he had in the postseason. So I don't think he'll end up taking it, but 
I think the Nets would like it if he did. I think they'd like to have him back because they know that they really don't have anyone else that's going to fill uh, that offensive production that he he gave them last year. And you just made a great point, Jared. I'll give you a two-fold question. For as much as we've progressed in baseball with analytics and forward thinking and people looking at things uh, you know, a little bit more than just in the next five minutes, postseason performance always seems to yield big contracts. So Murphy's great. Everybody wants to throw the money. Look at Pablo Sandoval. We all knew that he wasn't who he was in the playoffs, and they kind of regressed back. Cespedes is great in September. Up, oh, you know, he's going to get a big contract, and now he stinks in the World Series. Oh, maybe that hurts his value. That amazes me because that's so against what we've seen with the forward-thinking front offices that are starting to perpetuate the game. With that said, on that first part of the question, the second part is, you just said it best. It's not going to be easy to rebuild the offense if you let these two guys walk. Any chance they can find a way to bring back these two guys, um, or is it just not something that they're interested in doing for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, money being number one, but, but maybe other reasons from the construction of the, of the roster standpoint? But to answer your first question, I, I've actually had the same thought throughout the postseason about postseason performance and how it translates the contract value in this world where everything is dissected and we have such a, a good understanding of sample size and and this we know not to to look read too much into that sort of small sample in the playoffs. But I think what must it must be is that all it takes is one. All you need is one general manager or one owner to say, We saw what he did in the postseason, this is the guy we want and that jacks up everybody's bidding. Once one team gives them that, you know, over a contract that maybe he's not really worth, it becomes a bidding war, and all of a sudden he has a giant contract that maybe he didn't deserve. And I have a feeling you might see that with Daniel Murphy, where one team, for whatever reason, is enamored with what he did in the postseason, is willing to overpay, and then all of a sudden other teams start jumping into the fray because they want him to, and now the price is higher than they expected, and all of a sudden Daniel Murphy's getting ridiculously paid, maybe more than we thought. So we'll see uh, what happens there. As for Cespedes, Look, Sandy Alderson has made it very clear from the moment he stepped into this position that he does not like signing players in their 30s to long-term contracts. You know, Cespedes is 30. He's going to want six years, seven years, five to seven years for sure. It would be very out of character for the Mets to announce that we're going to give a slugger a contract that takes him to age 36, 37. I don't see it. But, look, he had a great season for the Mets, and he's going to get paid either way. I just don't think it's happening in New York. What about some of the other role players that, you know, because everyone's focusing in on Murphy and Cespedes, uh, not getting as much of attention, but I think two guys, a lot of Mets fans, if not all Mets fans, would love to have back, uh, Juan Uribe and Kelly Johnson. They came over together. Uh, Their impact was certainly felt. The the length of the bench was extended greatly by their arrival. Uh, Which of the players, if not both, are the Mets most interested in? What have you heard on the Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe front? I think they'd be very happy to take both of them back. Uh, but if they had to choose one, I think they would lean toward Johnson just because of his versatility defensively, knowing that you could put him pretty much at any position on the field uh, outside of maybe center field and catcher, uh, and he'd do an adequate job. Even with his short time with the Mets, I think he played every infield position in both corner outfield spots. Uh, and, you know, time. That's a great asset to have, knowing you can mix and match him, especially since you know, you don't know what David Wright's situation is going to be. You don't really know who's going to be playing second base uh, every day. You have, you know, you still have Wilmer Flores possibly as your shortstop and Ruben Tejada. There's a lot of moving parts. 
so to have a guy that you can just plug in anywhere uh, is a good thing to have. So I wouldn't be surprised if they try to bring Kelly back. Jared Diamond, Wall Street Journal, Mets Beat Reporter, joining us. When you look forward at some of the free agents, and I know this is so early, you know, we're, we're less than 24 hours into this thing, or about 24 hours into this thing. You know, everybody's going to be a copycat league now. Everybody's going to look for the contact player, and, and maybe the Mets decide, because their offense was a little feast or famine, to go that route uh, with free agency or trades. It, you know, taking a, you know, assuming Murphy and Cespedes are gone, a very good assumption. Is it, you know, Ian Desmond and Denard Span type, uh, you know, finding supplemental players and, you know, hoping that Conforto can pick up the slack offensively and Wright comes back and Duda is a little bit less feast or famine and Darno's healthy. You know, what direction do you see, you know, the team going realistically looking at the, uh, you know, balancing it out between uh, hope and dreams of the fans and, and knowing what Sandy Alderson uh, usually does? It sounds like the, the primary uh, consideration right now is to find another outfielder, uh, preferably somebody who could play center field and, and preferably hit left-handed uh, so he kind of pair with Juan Lagares in some capacity next year in center field. I don't know who that guy will be. I think there's a few names that jump out. Dexter Fowler uh, being one that I think would be a very nice fit with the Mets because not only does he play center field hit left-handed, you could use him at the top of the lineup, which would then allow you to move Curtis Granderson uh, into the middle and hopefully have some of those home runs come with runners on base, which was one downside of having him hit leadoff all year. I'm sure the Mets would love someone else to hit at the top of the lineup so they could move Granderson into the middle. Uh, and the other question, if you know, if they don't go for the outfielder, if they can't find an outfielder they like, it would be someone else in the infield, someone that could play shortstop, maybe give them an opportunity to move Wilmer Flores to second base and have a more established defensive shortstop. Is that guy Ian Desmond? You know, I don't know. He had a terrible season uh, this last year. Maybe that means his value will be lower than it would be otherwise. But I think outfield is, is the first priority, and I'm sure they'll be spending some money as well on some bullpen help. But I think it's pretty clear that they could use uh, another middle reliever or two, especially with Tyler Clipper uh, on the way out. And it's still unclear what's going to happen with Addison Reed. You know, Jared, speaking of the bullpen, I think two of their most effective guys out of the bullpen were starters throughout the year in Jonathan Neese and Bartolo Colon. Uh, Colon, obviously a fan favorite, still pitched very well despite his age. Um, also a free agent coming in now this year. And then Nice with, you know, Zach Wheeler's expected return sometime in June. And, you know, his contract situation, could you see him evolving into a role in the bullpen with this team if he's not traded somewhere like he's been rumored uh, the last couple seasons? John Neese is an interesting case because he is under contract. Uh, he has a pretty team-friendly contract still. The Mets will need him or someone to fill that fifth starter role uh, for at least part of the season until Zach Wheeler comes back. And let's face it, we all know that you don't only go through five starters in a season, so John Neese would provide some very nice depth. But you do wonder if that contract makes him attractive in a trade uh, for something else, and then the Mets go out and find another uh, – fifth starter type option elsewhere in the free agent market or something like that. So I'm kind of curious to see what happens with Nice. As for Bartolo, the Mets have made it clear they would love to have Cologne back. Uh, the question is, is will Cologne be willing to accept a role where he's not a starter necessarily, or he's more of a, a swing man, spot starter, pitch out of the bullpen guy? 
you know, Bartolo has said he would like to come back to the Mets, but I think there's also the belief he'd like to start somewhere. Uh, I don't know if he'll get that opportunity. If he does, I wouldn't be surprised if he takes it. If not, I, I think the Mets would really like to bring him back. Jared, last question before I let you go. Uh, you know, obviously everyone has talked about what a great job Terry Collins did with the clubhouse and how much the players like him. Uh, you know, he made some very questionable moves there at the end of the World Series. He's, you know, he's shown a pattern of, of struggling with some bullpen management. Um, I know he got a two-year deal, um, but the pressure and the expectations for this organization now have jumped way up. You know, it's not going to be good enough to be a nice little team that's rebuilding. They're not rebuilding anymore. Um, this team is 35 and 37 in June, and, you know, maybe that some of it is bad luck or, you know, they're trying to find themselves. A lot of teams go through periods now with two wild cards finding themselves. Uh, how secure is he? Are they committed to uh, Terry Collins, who's, let's face it, you know, more close to retirement age than he is in the, the crux or the heart of his baseball career? I mean, no one has job security in this business, if you're a manager especially. So if the Mets get out to a bad start, a really bad start, look, they're not going to just let him ride out two years. They expect to win next year. Both Terry Collins and Sandy Alderson have said very definitively that the expectations going into 2016 are going to be higher than they were going into 2015. 2015, the thought was, let's, let's get into the playoffs. You know, let's try to be a wild card. Let's see if we could get finally get back over the mountaintop and, and stop this string of losing seasons and all this. Now they've been to the World Series, the goal going to next year is to win this thing, to not only get back to the World Series, but win it. So certainly there's going to be pressure on Terry Collins, but, but there was no question he was coming back. And I know there were certain things he did in the playoffs that are questionable. I know that he's not always the best tactical manager, but the other guy who's not the best tactical manager out there is Ned Yost. And he got destroyed after 2014, some of the decisions he made with his bullpen going out of that World Series in which they lost, and a year later he's right back there and wins. So I think the Mets are hoping Terry Collins could follow him in, in Ned Yost's footsteps. So we appreciate you coming on. Are you going to take any time off? I mean, I know that the GM meetings and the winter meetings and baseball, like you said, is 24-7. You guys deserve some time off. It's been a long year, um, and the offseason is going to be shorter than ever. You're going to fall asleep, wake up, and you're going to be in Port St. Lucie. I mean, it's it's amazing. I know. Well, in December. After the GM meetings, I'm hoping to disappear for a while. <laughs> Enjoy your Saturday. Thanks a lot, Jared, for coming on, and we'll, uh, we'll talk again, okay? Anytime. Talk to you later. Jared Diamond, Wall Street Journal. Some very interesting nuggets there. Joe, let's take a quick break. When we return, let's uh, let's look forward. We've talked about the World Series. We've talked about Terry Collins. Let's look forward a little bit. If you guys want to chime in, uh, we're talking baseball, 646-716-8187. And then at 11 o'clock, we'll sh- switch gears. And really switch gears, and baseball goes to the hot stove, and football takes center stage. And, wow, it took nine weeks for that to happen here for New York-centric uh, sports talk show. So, anyway, you're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs. Mike Silva, Joe Bono, taking you all the way up till noon. If you want to listen to the show live or replay, go to WeekendWatchdogs.com. We'll be right back. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Every Saturday between 10 and noon, Mike Silva and Joe Bono bring you the Weekend Sports with a New York slant. A one-stop shop of quality commentary, hard-hitting debates, intelligent guests, and entertaining pop culture references. Go to WeekendWatchdogs.com for an archive of the latest shows, iTunes subscription, and to contact the show. It's Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Don't miss it. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. (laughs) 
Mike DeSilva, Joe Bono, you can watch those. Hope everybody's doing well. A lot of interesting stuff there, Joe, from Jared Diamond on the, uh, you know, on the Mets beat. And, um, you know, it's not going to be easy right now to fix this team. You know, I mean, to me, that's, uh, you know, for a team that has the starting pitching that we know they have, uh, they're in a tough spot because of where the positions of need are. You heard what Jared said about a center fielder uh, who hits left-handed. You know, Denard Spann, Dexter Fowl don't exactly excite me. You almost want Cespedes, but you want Cespedes to hit left-handed, and you don't want him to command the same kind of deal, and you'd rather him be a little bit younger. But, you know, if nuts and cherries were uh, fruit and berries, whatever it is that old saying goes, you know, we can't all have what we want, you know what I'm saying? And, um, listen, I think I saw some early thoughts on free agency, and, honestly, neither one of them really excited me much. Um, Ian Desmond, I look at Ian Desmond's numbers and compare them to Wilmer Flores' numbers, and they're pretty much the same. And you look at what you're going to have to pay Ian Desmond to get him to be a shortstop. Not that his ceiling might not be better, but he's also a poor defensive shortstop, and that's not going to change. And then elsewhere, Dexter Fowler is interesting. You know, again, you look at what Lagarde's expectations were heading into this year, getting the contract, hitting 280 in 2014, the elite center field. And he didn't play a great center field in the postseason either. Um, Obviously, the arm, not going to have Tommy John surgery, but that's still going to be a question mark going into the year. So now you have him kind of using him as a fourth outfielder, a guy who starts against righties, and then have, you know, maybe someone like Dexter Fowler against righties that can steal 20 bases, top of your lineup, that's intriguing, that's a little bit different, um, but you just wonder about the Mets offensively next year because they finally hit a stride after so many years of having an anemic offense, to now take a step back and with the question mark of David Wright, do you really want Kelly Johnson to be the guy playing third no. base for an extended period of time? Right. I don't. I'd rather I got- want Uribe in that, in that role more so than Kelly Johnson in a big, big way, and that's why Daniel Murphy if he was able to come back, it'd be such great insurance because then you could play Herrera at second with someone like Kelly Johnson, righty-lefty at second base, and have Murphy play third. Um, probably that's not going to happen. Right. I have an interesting question for you. Let's go to the phone lines. We have a 516-317. Looks like a Nassau County number jumping in. Mike Silva, Joe Bono, you're on the air. Hello? 516-317. Oh, Hello? 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 Yeah, hi, how are you? What's good? What's going on? So the other day I was on Twitter right after the uh you know, after the Mets won the lost the World Series, sorry, and um they were talking about Harv I was listening to Mike Frances on WFAM the other day. I don't know if you guys listened to him. And he was talking about uh Harvey and how the Mets if they were smart, they'd trade him now and tell Boris, like, pretty much go screw yourself if you're not going to accept a reasonable extension. So I went on Twitter and I tweeted to uh, John Heyman. I said, you know, what would be so bad about a Teixeira for Harvey deal? And he retweeted, of course, and the whole, you know, about 300,000 people went on to call me a moron. But I, I want to know what you guys think. What would be so bad about Teixeira for Harvey? The Mets would have a gold glove first baseman. You, you'd have a – Teixeira's performance was incredible until he went down. I don't understand why it would be such a terrible deal. Don't you think they I could think do if better I was playing, than Teixeira? 
Yeah, if I was playing I mean, fantasy baseball and I wanted to construct a roster for one season and one season only, there's parts of that that I understand. Uh, being switch hitter, I mean, he's got a lot of injury concerns this era. But when you look at that, Harvey's not a free agent after next year. He's not a free agent after the year after or the year – it's the year after that. So, to me, the only way the Mets would look to trade Matt Harvey in a relatively short period of time is if they came to him with an extension – and he was absolutely had no interest whatsoever in signing it. And you knew that it was going to happen a couple of years later that you were not going to be able to re-sign this guy. If I'm the Mets, I don't look to, to trade Matt Harvey until he's got one year left on his deal prior to that offseason for anyone, regardless of it, Mark Teixeira or anyone else. I think you're looking at Teixeira from seven years ago. That's an interesting conversation. I think right. the, the answer I'd say to you is, is Matt Harvey un, uh, untouchable? No, nobody's untouchable. But if you're going to trade Matt Harvey, I think you want someone young. You want to share it from 2008. You don't want to, not because he's not any good anymore, because um, you're trading away a young player, and not only trading away a young player. I mean, how how would you like to see Harvey throwing up zeros at Yankee Stadium? <laughs> and God forbid <laughs> Teixeira gets hurt or becomes uh, you know softball Teixeira. You know that wouldn't right. uh, that wouldn't fit well. But uh, interesting comment. Hey, thanks for the call. Great. Uh, Interesting call. A new listener to the show, so uh, someone interesting. We're making an impact. Maybe, maybe uh, we're reaching new, uh, uh, you know, new new parts here. Listen, I, the only guy that you're going to trade, you're not going to trade Harvey for more young pitching because he is still young pitching under contract. That's manageable salary. If you're going to trade Matt Harvey, it's going to be for elite everyday talent. That's why the Mets and Cubs were always looked at as trading partners because they say, well, they got elite everyday talent and the Mets have elite starting pitching. And whether it be Harvey for Rizzo or Bryant or Russell and Soler, whoever it be, it has to be those type of guys. And I'm you know what? Francesca, I'm not even crazy about being those type of guys. Francesca suggested Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts for Harvey. That, you got a lot think of people thought that. you got to think about that a little. But, look, you take this starting pitching, you run with it, you have a four-year window, it's going to get expensive, you're probably not going to be able to sign all of them. I think that's where the payroll conversation comes into play and how important it is. And I know these questions, our buddy Howard Megdal has already raised them at Politico uh, regarding will the Mets reinvest some of the uh, rumored $60 million windfall they got from this playoff run. Will they use that? Because they have to use a lot of that to, to the debt services against City Field, Madoff money, so on and so forth. Uh, these new ballparks, I think, are, are as much as anything uh, a crush on, on this organization from a financial standpoint, but you know that's that's part of the game when you finance a new ballpark. Here's a question I posed. Speaking of Twitter, at Mike Silva Media at J Bono six one one. This is a very good question I posed, and I think it got people thinking. If you want to take the next five years and want to put some money down, who is going to be more productive at third base, Daniel Murphy or David Wright? And I don't think that's an obvious answer, despite even though the numbers indicate David Wright had in a small sample, OPS Plus said he was a better offensive player than Daniel Murphy in 2015. Well, we know who would be the better defensive player. Not to say Wright is without his flaws Murphy. defensively. Murphy's, Murphy's better defensively at third. That's his best position. If he He's not better than David third Wright at third. He's not better than David Wright at third. Better throw. Better thrower. Yeah, I have more faith. I have more faith than Warren Uribe at third no. than David Wright defensively. No. David Wright Absolutely. was one of the reasons why that guy scored at third base. David Wright's not good defensively anymore, Joe. Okay. 
He made a number of really good plays in the postseason as well. And, you know, if you want to say that you want to talk about his layoff when it comes to offense, his layoff according to defense, too, is going to be impacted a little bit. But to say that David Daniel Murphy would be a better everyday third baseman defensively than David Wright, I, I cannot agree with that. I agree well, with Murphy. Means, best position might be third base, but to be a ev- better everyday third baseman, no. I won't go that way. I agree. Wright is frustrating with the throws. Obviously, he made an error in game, in game one is a problem. that ultimately ended the game uh, for the Mets, although I don't think the Mets were scoring if that game went 20 innings the way that inning, uh, those games unfolded. Um, but no, I, I, won't, I won't go as far as saying that. But I, listen, I think it's a really good question because if you told me, hey, David Wright's going to bat 280, 17 home runs, 78 RBIs next year, I go, yeah, I'll take that probably. And that's probably what Daniel Murphy would give you. If you want to look at this mathematically, and again, I don't know what this all means this is baseball reference, but you are, if you lose Cespedes and Murphy, you are essentially losing two, three, you're losing four wins off of this roster if you go wins above replacement. Now, the interesting thing is Cespedes was worth a little over two wins and just 200-something at-bats. So in eight weeks, he was worth two wins. So you extrapolate that over the course of the season, a guy like Cespedes um, is probably worth uh, two, four, you know, six wins or so in that ballpark. So you're really losing seven or eight wins off the roster over the course of the season. So you go from a 90-win team without those guys to an 82-win team, pitching or no pitching, and you've got to make that up. Is Denard Spann, Ian Desmond, Dexter Fowler... Are those guys going to make it up? Is Conforto going to uh, uh, be a 20? I mean, he's on pace. If you look at his numbers, to be about a 25 home run guy. Can yep. do to be a little bit more consistent. Well, right, 15 and 60 over the course of a year. What is Dilson Herrera, who did, you know, other than that one game against the Reds, didn't really do much the whole rest of the season? Young guy. You're relying on a lot of ifs on that offense. And, yeah, you have a Kelly Johnson, and maybe you bring back your rebate or you plug it in with another veteran. But you are basically relying on the starting pitching, Familia, hoping that you could cobble together a decent bullpen with this manager that's always holding your breath, even with good arms. Um, I think if I do the numbers, out of their 90 wins, 70 of them seem to be formulated from some variation of the, of the pitchers, believe it or not. That's a loss based on wins above replacement. I don't know if, you know, it is what it is. I don't know how that, you know, how they translate that. Well, listen, that's, that's, that's the strength of the team. It will can. Yeah, to your point, can they can they put together enough offense throughout the year to put them back in a position to be in the postseason? Now, you can say, Mike, if you want to be the um, devil's advocate to that argument, there's no way they're going to spend a June and July offensively like they did last year. It's just it's just not possibly be that bad offensively for sixty games or so, a third of your year so, of your year. Again. These two guys to come off the roster right now. And I know that they're going to make changes, but I don't still, guarantee that it ain't going to be still, like that. With Her- Herrera and Wright, you're making Mike, a lot of assumptions. So much worse. I mean, we're talking Eric Campbell. We're talking John Mayberry. We're talking, you know, Darren Siciliani. We're, I mean, we're, we're talking minor leaguers up and down the lineup. Ruben Tejada playing third. I'm just saying, with the pitching they have, 
you take that 60-game stretch and you say even even if the offense isn't what it was in August and September, they should be a better, more consistent team throughout the year offensively than they were this season. And just by doing that, maybe they don't have the same stretch of, of, of games that they had in August, but maybe when you look at the season as a whole, it ends up bringing them right around that 90-win number again. I don't know. If the, I mean, here's the thing. Is, you know, you need, in this, in, this, in this league, where you had teams like the Pirates and the Cubs and the Cardinals, and look, I don't know what the Nationals and Dusty Baker are going to be, but they have Scherzer and Strasburg, who are a great one, too. You I'm know, when they're on, they're they're as good as Kershaw Grinky. Um, you know, they have Papelbon who's an experienced closer. They have Bryce Harper. I know they're going to lose a number of players, but you have to think that they'll. You know, with those with that foundation, they're still going to be tough. I do think they're in a good position with it, hunted in the National League, and that's the biggest thing. And I think Jared Diamond brought this up, Joe. There's no more sneaking up on anybody. There's going to be a totally different situation. When the Mets come into town, teams are going to be up for them. So they're not going to sneak up on a sleepy Nationals team. They're not going to sneak up. What they saw in September when the Nationals came at them and they had to accept the challenge and they, when they won, you know, every city you go in now, the Mets are the National League champs. They're not going to be looked at mm-hmm. as, oh, here's this team coming in. It's not going to be easy. And this is going to I get saw an article. Hurts cause, you know. No, I agree. And I saw a story about um... – you know, the 2001 offseason, you know, and the Mets had been to the playoffs in 99. They were, went to the World Series in 2000, and you just felt like it was going to keep on moving forward. And, you know, first and foremost, Alex Rodriguez was out there. People thought the Mets should have gotten him. He wanted to come to the Mets. Didn't work out. Mets probably never would have approached $252 million that he got from Texas. So he was gone. Um, then you looked at Mike Hampton deciding to sign with Colorado not coming back to the Mets, and who did they get Kevin Which led to David Wright. Which led to David Wright. So that turned Which out led to David Wright. But I'm saying, in terms of the 2001 team, people thought, well, this was a 97-win team in 99. They were a 95-win team or whatever in 2000. And they would continue to be that team next the following year, and they ended up, I think, going you know, 82-80 and 80 in 2001. And that was with a tremendous oh. stretch in September post-9-11. Um, because they just didn't have the talent. They didn't get the reinforcements back that year in the offseason to actually make themselves better or even be plateaued with what they finished with in 2000. And I think that's the worry as a Mets fan. When the season starts in Kansas City and they have to watch the Royals raise their championship banner next year on Sunday Night Baseball, will the Mets be a team on paper that is as good as the team they finished with this year? And the answer may be no. Well, I think you always build up to that point. Last point before we take a break and we transition to football in the 11 o'clock hour. The difference is in 2000, there was not a foundation. It was a lot of veteran players, mercenaries. You had Piazza and Leiter, but they were in the prime. You didn't have a young foundation. In 2006, you had Beltran, Reyes, and Wright, three really elite, you know, one in prime, two early prime hitters, uh, but you didn't have a pitching foundation. You had a bunch of, again, mercenaries coming in and out. You had a, rebuild, you had a top-heavy roster. They actually have this time a foundation, a young foundation, a controllable foundation. It's pitching, and it's volatile because pitchers are, you know, two of these guys can get hurt next year. You can't just go in with five starters like Jared said. You need to have six, seven, eight. That's why you have to take a long look at Cologne. If you, don't, you can't sign Cologne, you're going to have to go out and get a veteran complement that can do what 
he did start, relieve, kind of who cares about his arm, unfortunately to say. So that's the difference between the 99 team. For the first time since the 80s, Joe, and I think you could agree on this, there is a foundation that you expect to be here. And they've proven themselves now over two, three years that it's not just a fluke. And then you build the offense around. You can't build the whole team, 25 guys. You have the pitching foundation. Now, you wish you had more offensive foundation, but you have Herrera, you have Conforto. Those are two young guys. If they are who they think they are, Joe, that's decent two young players that can start to pass the baton from right. And, and you know, Murphy and Cespedes, if, you know, because it'll be gone. So it'll be interesting. But anyway, uh, let's take a break. We're going to transition. We're going to talk Giants. We're going to talk Jets. Uh, well, you know, if you want to call in the number 646-716-8187, you're listening to the Weekend Watchdog Mike Silva, Joe Bono. We'll be right back. Super Bowl champion Giants running back Joe Morris joined the Weekend Watchdogs. You guys practiced the flea flicker all year long, yet the entire team, all 11 members of the offense, were shocked. And Bill Parcells actually called for it and actually had to look over to the sidelines because you guys didn't believe that that was really the play. <laughs> we worked on that play. Every week. No, I got to admit, there are times that we didn't, you know, sometimes I'd miss the pit, sometimes Phil would miss the guy and whatever. We, we screwed up a couple of times, but we worked on it every week. We never called that play. I brought the play in from the sidelines. I was on the sidelines the play before. Came off to the sidelines, and I told Phil what the play was. He stepped out of the to take a look at Parcells to make sure. You sure you want this play? And here's Parcells <laughs> going, go. Run the freaking play. I, I send it in. You run this play. He throws this play, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's actually to it. And it was completed. And it's it changed the complexion of the game. It's the Weekend Watchdogs, every Saturday, 10 to noon, on Blog Talk Radio. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Sova and Joe Bono. <laughs> Weekend Watchdogs, Joe Bono, Mike Silva transitioning to football week nine of the NFL season and finally football taking focus here in New York. And joining us to talk Giants is the founder of Gotham Sports Network. You can follow him on Twitter at EthanGSN. It's Ethan Levy. Ethan, Joe Bono, Mike Silva, how are you doing this morning, bud? I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Ethan, I wanted to have you on, not to break down whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich, but you guys can check that out on his on his web on the website. It made me think. Network.com. That made me think. I have to wonder if the hot dog is a sandwich. I, I never thought of it that way. I don't want I don't want to go into it too much because I swear to God, yesterday I had people asking me about it, and it was supposed to be like a a two minute discussion, and I ended up talking about it for a half hour. And this happened with <laughs> this happened with multiple people. It's not a sandwich. If you want my reasoning, you can check out the blog. But I think we should. Stay out of the hot dog sandwich argument for right now. Well, you're equally as passionate about the New York Giants, and you really have been, uh, and I think rightfully so, highly critical uh, of Jerry Reese um, in in recent weeks and the type of team that he's really put and the type of talent he's given Tom Coughlin, whether you think Coughlin should be here or not this season. Giants are at 4-4 four and four because the division is the me- a mess. Um, there's still a chance they could actually win this thing and, and have a postseason home game, believe it or not. But just kind of summarize your thoughts on Reese and where you see the major deficiencies in this roster. The deficiencies are everywhere, and it's frustrating. And uh, one of the main points that I've tried to make throughout this whole season is that, yes, this team lacks talent, but the talent they do have is poorly coached. Now, we can get into Jerry Reese a little bit, 
we can start with the linebacker play. And if you're a Giants fan and you've been following the Giants for a long time, you know Jerry Reese doesn't value the linebacker position at all. The last time he took a linebacker before the fourth round was Clinton in 2009, and we all know how that worked out. It didn't. We went into the season with John Beeson as the starting middle linebacker. John Beeson just can't be trusted to stay healthy. John Beeson, out of his team's last 72 games, Beeson was available to play in 29 of them. So John Beeson's availability rate is sitting at about 40% right now, and we see it again where he's not going to be available tomorrow against the Bucks. Jerry Reese also thought a suitable backup for him would be Uwani Unga, who is a 27-year-old undrafted free agent out of BYU who probably wouldn't even crack the practice squad on most other teams. So we can see the deficiencies already in the defense at the linebacker position. Jerry Reese also emphasized depth this offseason. And what we've seen so far is Prince Mukamara goes down, and all of a sudden that pretty good secondary has seen just player after player expose them, whether it was last week and it was Marcus Colston, it was Ben Watson, just exposing Trevin Wade and J. Ron Hosley in coverage. It was just an absolute disaster. Ethan, it's interesting <laughs> listening to you talk about the Giants because, you know, we were just in baseball talking process and outcome. And both Jerry Reese and Tom Coughlin are revered here because of two Super Bowls. But let's peel the onion a little bit. Two nice runs that became pretty unlikely. A little bit like the Mets all of a sudden came out of nowhere and got to the World Series and, and they closed right. the deal. Um, but there has been that talk, the lack of playoff, uh, you know, uh, appearances. Um, you know, there's always criticism of Eli. It sounds like, you know, you're ready to move on from these two guys. And, um, you know, if they win a bad division this year and even make noise maybe one game in the playoffs, I don't know if that's going to happen because you know how everybody is about outcomes in this town. And right. the two Super Bowls give these guys a lot of rope. No, you're 100% right. And it seems, you know, 2007, Tom Coughlin's on the hot seat. He pulls one out. He's 2011. He's on the hot seat. Pulls another one out. Doesn't, I mean, I don't want to say, you know, you never say never, especially because as a Giants fan, anyone who's followed the Giants knows all you need to do is get in and you have a chance. And that's especially true in this division because we're sitting at four and four. You're in first place. The Redskins are led by Kirk Cousins. The Eagles' offense is just really bad under Chip Kelly and Sam Bradford. And then the Cowboys, who haven't had Tony Romo or Des Bryant for a majority of the season, are sitting at two and five. So, and I've had plenty of conversations with incredibly negative fans who would prefer to just tank the season because they feel that inevitably this team finishes 8-8, eight and eight, somehow manages to miss the playoffs, and all of a sudden we're sitting with a mid-round draft pick. But at 4-4 four and four and leading the division, you just can't say that. I do think Tom Coughlin is done after this year. If, he, it's, if it's because the team ends up performing well and he makes the playoffs, great. He can kind of leave on a good note. But I think John Mara has pretty much had it with the lack of playoffs, the inconsistencies, and, you know, when push comes to shove, it'll come down to the fact that the Giants haven't made the playoffs. Joe Bona, Mike Silva, Weekend Watchdogs with Ethan Levy of Gotham Sports Network. Follow him on Twitter at EthanGSN. All right, let me be positive for a little bit. Positive Let's do it. I need be... some positivity. <laughs> There's a right, shot. Joe Bono positive? I mean, let's. I mean, let's 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 have a party on Joe Bono being positive. I said, <laughs> I said for a moment. I said for a moment. Um, Giants are four and four. Neither division. Will Beatty's going to be coming back. Amul Gamara is going to be coming back. Victor Cruz. He ran in a straight line this week, which was very exciting. And 
Um, obviously, Jason, P- Jason Pierre-Paul, everyone's saying, looks much better than they expected. Shocked by the type of shape he's in. We don't know if that's football shape yet, but he's going to be coming back soon, shortly. So from a positivity standpoint, they're 4-4, four and four, haven't played well, had the opportunity to win three games that they lost this season, Atlanta, Dallas, and the debacle last week. If this team gets these guys back and they play well, could they turn the corner and, you know, make it at 9-7 and seven and make some noise? Guys, you want it to be positive. I think I have to bring it way back to a negative note here. I think the <laughs> – and I hate to do it, but I, I do think the only player who's currently injured that's going to make a significant difference when they come back is Prince of Mukamara. Will Beattie, and with all the new rules with the CBA and the lack of contact and practice, you know, you're talking about players that haven't – Will Beattie hasn't played all season. Pierre Paul, while he may be in good shape – he hasn't played all season. He's also playing 10 pounds under his normal playing weight. Victor Cruz missed the majority of last season and a majority of this season coming off serious knee surgery and a nagging calf injury. I don't know if you can count on these guys to be huge difference makers when they come back. Now, especially for Jason Pierre-Paul, when you look at what happened last year, he was just incredibly inconsistent. He started off the first four games slow, two good games, two bad games. At least that's what the pro football focus. And, Joe, you know how much I love the guys at pro oh, football love focus. <laughs> I love those guys. At least that's what they seem to indicate that the numbers show. And on the other side of the line, with Robert Ayers, while he is ranked one of the best four three defensive ends in the league because he's always getting pressure, he actually has one of the worst pressure-to-sack conversion rates of any defensive end in the league since 2008. So now you're going to throw Jason Pierre-Paul opposite him on the line. What are teams going to do? They're just going to double-team him. And you're going to double-team a guy who hasn't played the entire season you're going to expect him to make a huge impact. And I really just, you know, you hope it makes a difference with the pass rush. But I would be, you know, I'm not going to get anyone's hopes up. You know, Ethan, though, you look at the offense, and I'm looking at the schedule, and you know what? you got two games that I'm going to count as automatic losses, the Patriots and the Panthers. And even though right. those are at home, I'm you got to at least think uh, that I'm nine wins is what? not a cr- but even nine wins, I look at this run, I'm like, hey, you know, nine wins is probably what I could see the match. I mean, if they're going to put up 30 points, and I know that we're maybe we're getting gaga over the, the, the New Orleans game, but right. if they're going to put up 30 points, they're going to beat some of those other teams, especially the teams in their division. So I don't think nine wins, despite all the negativity, which you are correct, is, is wild. And then you get in the playoffs, look, are they going to win a championship? No. But in the playoffs, I mean, it could actually be a bad thing because then it's going to delude them to believing they're better than they are. That's... That's all separate. Right. But nine wins is very realistic. Yeah, I mean, if we're, if we're looking ahead, which I, which I hate to do, the, they should beat the Bucks. The Patriots, I'm terrified of what Thomas Brady and Robert Gronkowski are going to do to this linebacking core and secondary. But I, none, of these, none of these teams are, are really shoo-ins. You look at the Eagles. The Giants in the past, I believe, three seasons are, and so far through this season, are 2-10 and ten against the Eagles and the Cowboys. Even with the Eagles' putrid offense and the Cowboys missing, you know, uh, Des Bryant and Tony Romo, a divisional game is never a lock, especially with the Redskins coming up after the Patriots. The Jets' defense is great, and if Ryan Fitzpatrick is healthy, who knows? They can expose a bad Giants' defense. The Panthers the next week, they're undefeated. You know, none of these teams are, are really locks. I, I just don't think it's going to be as easy as some people think. But just looking ahead to tomorrow with the Bucks, that is a game that they should most definitely win. Have to win. Have, they have, if they had have any chance, I thought the game against New Orleans, I did not expect them to win. And after they get the, you know, the pick six for the touchdown, I'm going, wow, if they win this game, 
and they're five and three, and then can win next week, and they'll be a six and three team. And it didn't happen, um, which I thought they needed to win a game that they didn't expect to win. I thought that was their opportunity last week, which was so frustrating about it. But seeing the offense explode the way they did, and I know sometimes in the NFL, just kind of have these type of games where the defense on both sides can't cover anyone. But they finally got Beckham going. And it's been really frustrating to watch some of the top receivers in the league find a way to get the ball. And their offense to be creative enough to get him the ball because I feel the Giants, for whatever reason, have not force-fed them the way they did the end of last year. I want to see what your observations on that, too, because as a fantasy owner of Odell Beckham Jr. (laughs) as well, and you're watching him line up where he's going to line up on every single play, I just don't understand why they haven't developed more ways to just get him the ball. Yeah, you're 100% right. And if you look at the target differentials between the first half and the second half, he is just not getting the ball nearly as much, if at all, in the second half. We saw it. Uh, a few weeks ago against the Eagles, where he lit the Eagles up in the first half and then was only targeted twice in the second half. And we saw it against the Cowboys and la- even last week against the Saints. And it's pretty frustrating, I mean, especially for you as a fantasy owner to watch, but also just watching the offense. And if you watch someone like Julio Jones or Antonio Brown, these guys, all you've got to do is get them the ball and they're going to make a play. And Beckham is the same way. If you look at the, f- the first half with the Saints, Two of the touchdown passes were just quick slants. You know, one-yard line, boom, get back on the ball, he'll get in the end zone. I don't see why you're not doing that more often in midfield or when you're backed up towards your end zone because with a guy like him, he can break one. Ethan, I almost feel, though, everybody's waiting. You know, Tony Romo's on the horizon and, and you know, Des Bryant's back. You're almost waiting for the Cowboys to make a run. I know they're two and five. Is that the team in the division that worries you? Um, I know the Giants are the team that worries you the most, but taking that aside, um, is that the team that you fear would you know could rattle off some wins and uh, and you know make this interesting? Because I really think this is the Giants' division to lose. I know we keep going back to the nine win thing, and maybe we're being overly right. optimistic, but I mean really, let's 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 just be fair, looking up and down the division. Other than the the, the fear that the Cowboys all of a sudden go on a run with Romo coming back. Yeah, I mean you have to be scared of them, and it's not like they have the, a, a very hard schedule. They have a schedule on par with the Giants, and if you put a healthy Dez and a healthy Tony Romo on that team, they are 100% a better team than the Giants are. Um, so you definitely have to worry about them making a run. I wouldn't worry too much about the Redskins, but the Eagles, that defense is way better than people think. Uh, Chip Kelly, if he can get the offense going, I know there were plenty of rumors about if they were going to make a move for a quarterback at the deadline, but they didn't. Chip Kelly likes to stick with his guys. I would definitely worry about the Cowboys. Even at 2-5, and five, this division is still very much up for grabs. I'm glad the Giants obviously played the Cowboys already twice this year and got that win, somehow got that win. Thank uh, God. A defensive touchdown and a special teams touchdown to beat the Cowboys. Because you're going to probably need tiebreakers, Ethan, uh, possibly to get in this division. They have the two losses. They need to probably go 4-2 and two in this division to get the tiebreakers that might be necessary if, ever, if multiple teams finish 8-8 eight eight or 9-7. and seven. 100%. We could be looking at the NFC South of a couple of years ago where a 7-9 and nine team sneaks into the playoffs uh, on a tiebreaker. I think 8-8 eight and eight definitely wins the division, and it's going to just come down to who's less mediocre down the stretch. He's Ethan Levy. You can follow him on Twitter at EthanGSN. Guys, definitely check out his website, GothamSN.com. A lot of fun stuff, a lot of really good young writers there. And Ethan obviously does a great job covering 
the Giants. He'll also be a contributor to Isles blog throughout the course of the season. So I look forward to doing more stuff there. Ethan, really appreciate some time this morning, and we'll uh, we'll talk real soon, buddy. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, great stuff, Ethan. I mean, we should have asked Ethan if he's in the camp of Howie Rose hating the Islanders' black jerseys, but that would go against <laughs> my. After January 1. That would be, that would, that would be after uh, January 1. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, we'll uh, – actually, I'm going to ask you about the hot dog sandwich thing because it was interesting. I saw it the other day, or was it yesterday? Um, um, and um, uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, that. We'll talk about the Jets. Seth Walder of the uh, New York Daily News will be joining us in a little bit, and uh, we'll take your call, 646-716-8187. You're listening to The Week Watch Dogs. Mike Silva, Joe Bono. We'll be right back. Nick's beat writer for the New York Daily News, Frank Gaisola, joined the Weekend Watchdog. Maybe it wasn't the plan, but maybe this is the best thing. They're bottoming out. They could get a top pick, like you said, and eventually, in the next two to three years, rebuild this the right way. I understand Carmelo's limitations and the age, but maybe this was the best thing overall, even if it wasn't the plan. And I know you don't share that opinion, but you got to at least give some credence to that thought. I just laugh at it because I think, you know, you know what the, um, the movie or the Broadway play, the producers, is when like you know, they're trying to come up with the yes. worst play possible to go out of business, <laughs> and then it turns out to be a hit. The Knicks are like the opposite of it. Phil thought he was putting together a hit. Instead, it turns out to be a disaster, and everyone's like, he's a genius. Look what he's doing. We're going to get a lottery pick when we have all this cap space. That's the part that makes me laugh about it. But I think it is a smart play right now, absolutely, uh, to do what they're doing. I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with it. Listen to the Weekend Watchdogs every Saturday, 10 to noon, on Blog Talk Radio. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. <laughs> Mike Silva, Joe Bono, Weekend Watchdog, seeing up to noon. Here's the thing, Joe. Two questions before we get into the Jets. Number one, fundamentally, I guess, when you really think about it, a hot dog is a sandwich. It's got bread and it's got meat in between the bread, fundamentally. But I think from a social acceptance standpoint, nobody looks at it because it's in its own category. That's number one. Number two, here's what's funny about Twitter, is that people hang on to things and then throw it back in your, in your face. I, after the Yankees got eliminated, I tweeted out that the pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks, and I'm not a Starbucks drinker, but I do like their pumpkin spice latte tasted especially great because of the fact that the pinstripe bubble was all in a tizzy after they lost to Houston in the wild card playing game. Now people are not only retweeting that and coming back at me, they're saying that the pumpkin spice latte is not a masculine drink. You're basically now saying anything at Starbucks is not masculine. I disagree with that. What are your thoughts? First with the sandwich, and then with the uh, the Starbucks pumpkin uh, spice latte. No, I think latte. it's a. Um, no, I think a pumpkin spice latte. I'll start there. I think that's a masculine drink. The, also, I think the beauty of getting um, a feminine drink at a coffee place is that you really wouldn't be able to know what the person is drinking based upon the cup that you're that you're holding. It's not like when you go to a bar and they give you the cocktail menu, and you know you're not exactly sure what kind of glass. That the menu, that the cocktail is going to come in, and you can order something because you like the ingredients, and it comes in like the little flimsy, you know, skinny glass or like the Cosmo never would catch glass. me drinking that. You'll never catch me drinking. I know that you're probably glass. a domestic beer type of guy. So Coors that's what I, I would like say Corona. about the pumpkin spice. I do like Corona, but that's not exactly classy beer, Corona. I 
I would agree with that. For me, um, <laughs> hot dog is not a sandwich. Um, I think if you look at a sandwich, then the hamburger is a sandwich, too. If you're going to go hot dog is a sandwich, then the hamburger must be a sandwich, too. The bun, to me, is a disqualifier. Um, you know, bread, it, to me, should be in a different category than bun. Um, and I think also, to me, sliced meat is different than kind of, you know, kind of um, whatever a ham, whatever you would say, you know, ground beef or a hot dog would be. To me, a sandwich is sliced meat between bread sliced. that is not a bun. You know, quietly, amongst all this World Series talk, we're going to get to the Jets in a minute, the Giants in their week nine going into the back half of the season. Drama that's ahead. I know they're only two and five, but Christoph Porzingis looks pretty good. Looks like they made a good pick there with number four. Some of the young role players, Jerry and Grant, uh, Langston Galloway, showing some progress. Look, I'm not saying they're a championship team. I know Carmelo's not playing well. I would expect that as he gets his legs under to, uh, to change over the course of the next six weeks. Knicks are showing progress, despite the 2-5 and five record. Well, you couldn't not show progress based upon what they did last year. Um, progress so anything, in terms of it's, it's, going I mean, to be, it's going to be the type of year where you're not going to focus in on record, and you're going to look at certain things throughout the year that make you, make you feel positive about moving forward. And the biggest one is probably Porzingis and then maybe Grant as, as the second one. And I think that's most impressive about Porzingis, and it came across the day he got drafted, is he just gets it. He's got a personality. He understands New York. Kids from Latvia, and he understands New York at 20 years right. old, better than other guys who have been here, you know, 10 years understand New York. Got, and well, the fan base Stephon is Marbury rooting for him here. in a big way. Right, and the fan base is rooting right. for him in a big way. They know he's working his butt off. He's working his tail off all the time to get better. And you know what? It's funny because he puts these put-back dunks back, and he flexes afterwards. But he's seven foot three, and he's two hundred pounds, and he shows no muscles. But you know that's going to change. You think he's going to be a very, very good player? To me, again, the head scratcher for me, Mike. And I don't want to go down this road because we've discussed it ad nauseum. But it makes no sense having Carmelo Anthony on this team. It just doesn't. You know what, Joe? Maybe you turn out to be right. And here's the thing. You know, he might not want to be part of this thing at some point and try to trade him. I mean, maybe Chicago looks good or whatever. I mean, you got some issues with Yakim Noah over there. Um, you know, the Bulls are kind of in that post-Thibodeau transition. The Bulls remind me of how the Knicks were post-Riley. You have, kind of lose your identity. Now, they, they, re, they, they re-engineered on the fly, bringing a Van Gundy, who was a mini-Riley in there. But the Riley to the Don Nelson was kind of a, of a clumsy transition. Because you were taking a team from one stra- you know, one type of style to another. But, you know, listen, just wanted to throw that in there. We are allowed to talk NBA prior to January 1st. We're not allowed to talk hockey prior to January 1st. Although Elaine Vigneault had some harsh things to say about Ioannis Suspis, to be fair here. I mean, the kind of guy that, I mean, I understand hockey players grind it out. Big difference, bruiser, and skating up and down the ice and just hitting people and creating plays versus trying to actually catch a fly ball in the outfield in the World Series or run to first base, you know, when you're a gimp. You know, 
during the World Series. I thought that was a little harsh. Mm-hmm. Big deal. But can we I talk uh, NASA? Can we talk Nassau County at all? Can we talk Nassau like, indirectly? Talk I, Islanders? I can't vote Nassau County, but you're more than welcome. If you're happy that Kate Murray got ousted, you know, I, I, you know, I uh, Nassau County is a cesspool of politics. It doesn't matter if it's Democrat or Republican. Well, in the end, you know, all the Islander fans that were so vocal and Madeline Singus beat Kate Murray in the district attorney race there, and she thanked Islander fans in her acceptance speech. Um, now, listen, the same Islander fans that were so adamantly against Kate Murray and were so vocal about her not winning, I mean, remember, Nassau County had the opportunity to keep the Islanders in 2011 with that August 1 right. vote, and it didn't happen. Um, to me, the thing that's Everything happening right was now against that is they had, yeah, I understand, and the, um, you know, they had the groundbreaking for the new Coliseum yesterday, right. Right. or on Thursday, excuse me, and... You know, people are saying now, well, the Nets have already the Nets have already um, announced that their D-League team will be playing there. Yep, I saw that. And then the question is whether or not the Islanders will have preseason games there or potentially have regular season games there throughout the year. Some people believe there's absolutely no chance for them to ever play regular season games there. Um, others, and I am one of them, that think it would make a lot of sense to do it. I think it'd be a novelty thing each and every year. You're limited to a certain amount of games. Every one of those games would sell out. It would be lining the same pockets that line Barclays Center. Uh, the only crit- only thing you do is you open yourself up to criticism to where it's a better hockey experience at the other arena. And than you know, Brett, your mark doesn't want your that. Games at. So that's, Joe, that to this me whole is branding, I, 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 told, I hate to be and I told you so I know it annoys you, but there's nothing about this Brooklyn thing. Even for you who lives a stone's throw from the Barclays, you cannot, being an Islanders fan, be excited about this branding of this team in Brooklyn. It's just it's not the same. Oh, well, Harry Rose. Listen, Harry Rose said it the best, and Harry Rose has been vocal in the past uh, about Islanders. I think he knows he's he's untouchable. Yeah, but Harry Rose knows where the roots are of that franchise. One thing that he said was surprising is that he said, you know, if you're going to rebrand it, why not just go Brooklyn Islanders? Like, just call them the Brooklyn Islanders. But try to do this half and half thing. What they want, and he's been, and he said what I wanted. He said what he said what I wanted to say, which was, hey, listen, black and white is not the. I understand it's a money grab, but don't give me this nonsense that black and white are the official colors of Brooklyn. The colors of Brooklyn are blue and gold. If you really want to go by the book on it, so stop force feeding me stuff that fits into your storytelling on what the borough of Brooklyn should be. Um, a couple other things. The attendance numbers are wretched. They're uh, below 12,500, and they had a fake sellout the first night. Um, the right. numbers are not good. It's yeah. early season. There were a lot of baseball, and early season hockey generally does not do great for That's the Islanders regardless. We'll see if those numbers pick up. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, 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 hasn't, it hasn't been good. All the other problems are still there with the obstructed views and all these things that are going away. Uh, people have been making fun of the car that's behind the glass now for a number of weeks. <laughs> Is actually a Twitter handle that they're saying that that's the new mascot <laughs> that they got rid of. You know, they got rid of Sparky the Dragon, so now it's Honky the Honda SUV is the, now the official mascot of the New York Islanders. And with all that, they're not really playing that well either. So, if all these different factors, and that's my brief synopsis uh, into what's all that's happening with an Islander and, country in recent. And it's interesting because Joe, this is, and I'm impressed at your objectivity because I figured you'd be you'd be wearing the Brooklyn Barclays colored glasses. Like Brett Yormark, but I mean, I give you I give you credit. You're right in there. Someone who has never lived and very rarely steps a foot into a five one six six three one area code. Uh, you live, uh, like I said, a stone's throw away from the Barclays. You have been objective, and I think you miss 
the old Islanders. And I think that it would be nice if this, this National Coliseum thing goes through, for them to have a few games a year there, and for the fans to see what they're missing, and to see what an overrated, sanitized, Jay-Z concert venue the Barclays Center is, you know? I don't even think it's a great basketball arena. I just, I just don't. I just went there. I'm like, all right, you know, it's modern. It's different. It's not the you know, garden. I've been to other basketball arenas, and I think it's just as good, if not better, than some of the other, you know, big time basketball arenas that I have been at for NBA games. It's not the garden. No. It's not the it's garden. Not it's not the garden. It's still a very good arena. The food options are outstanding. The surrounding area is great for bars and restaurants and doing all those kind of things. Right. So it's a different type of environment and things that are going on. But listen, for a hockey arena, it just it just isn't what it's supposed to be. We will have Seth Walder join us for a few minutes. Seth Walder, we hope to have him a beat reporter for the Jets for the New York Daily News in a couple of minutes as we transition to the Jets. And, Joe, it's amazing with the Jets that it never really, you know, I hate to use the same old Jets thing because that's the whole thing that they, the narrative they throw at the Mets. But in a season that looked like it was heading towards you know, maybe something a little bit special. They have the bad loss against New England. Then Fitzpatrick hurts himself. They look every bit as awful last week as they did under Rex Ryan. Uh, you know, there's questions now about the defense. Derek Carr lights them up. Um, you know, Fitzpatrick's going to play, but how efficient can he be? You know, Geno Smith looks lost again. Uh, you don't have anybody. You know, Petty's not ready. You know, there's that. That could be the the, the tagline. Petty's not ready. Uh, the division's gone because New England. I don't know if New England's going to lose a game this year. I mean, if they do, they lose one game. So the division's gone. So basically, right now you're fighting for the wild card amongst Pittsburgh and Oakland and Kansas City. I mean, hey, Mike, listen, I said it. I said it before the Patriot game. I said, I said the Jets have not impressed me. I said, who have they beat? Who have they beat? They beat the Browns. I mean, Joe. I mean, let's let's. They lost to the Eagles. They beat the Dolphins and the Redskins. I mean, listen, you play who you play, but they did not have one impressive win on that on that resume right now. They go to Oakland, a game which I thought they would win. I thought they weren't favored no, by enough in that game, game and get blown out. But look at their schedule, Mike. They're still going to win 10 games, and I think they're still going to make the playoffs. Joe, this I got to tell you. the easiest schedule I've ever seen. Joe, I got to tell you, everybody's looking past this game this week. Let me tell you, Jacksonville is not a team I'd mess around with. They got Bortles. They've got T.J. Yeldon. They've got Hearn. They don't win on the road. They win on the road. I know, but you know what? They could put up points, and after what you saw Carr do to them last week, I know that was in Oakland, and I know that's a tough place to play, and I understand all that stuff. But, um, you know, really, you, you know, first of all, I wouldn't take the game against the spread. Spread is seven and a half, eight. I'd take Jacksonville on that one. Here's my, here's my uh, week nine prediction for the Jets. They will be nine and five going into Saturday, December nineteenth game at Dallas. They will lose that game. They will lose the next week at home to the Patriots, and they will need to beat Rex Bryan in Buffalo the final week of the season to make the playoffs. And you know that that will be Rex will be talking whether they're in it or out of it. Rex will be talking trash. You know, Mojo, our buddy Mojo, will be on later. He'll be all ramped up. That might be his – that's his Super Bowl because of his uh, – you know, some people feel they tweeted him, but he has an axe to grind against Rex. No, the, the Mojo the uh, Mojo Bowl that would be the uh, Jets versus Panthers. That is, that's Mojo true, Bowl. the Mojo Bowl. 
And the, oh yeah, that's it. The Mojo. The Mo- and the Giants are playing the Panthers. But that's not the Mojo Bowl. That's the you know the Bono Bono versus Mojo Bowl on that one. Anyway. <laughs> are you uh, are you covering any games? I know you covered the Dallas game. No, not this week. Not this week. I'm not uh, no interest in Jets Jags. So, but I probably will be there for Giants Patriots next week. That would be my guess. We'll see if they uh, they give me the call to uh, cover that game. It's a 4:25 start next Sunday. 425 stars. And then the Giants are on a bye, and I have to go to a housewarming party. My friend who just moved to uh, Wyckoff and I'm trying to figure out a way to get everyone over for you know some football and some food and check out the new house. So I'll be uh, in Wyckoff a couple a couple weeks from now to watch games. Look at that. You seem to have it all figured out. Yeah, I not these days. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> so no, a lot of uh, confusion going on actually. But yeah, it sounds like I got it going on. Listen, you're the voice of the Islanders. How much better could it be? Mm. These, I tell you what, I bought the season ticket package. 41 games, I could never do it. These people that go to the 41 games, they are the diehards of the diehards. Are you able to sell those tickets? I've sold a couple, but I'm giving them away. I'm doing the giveaways on my um, Isles blog on Twitter. That's always the problem. um, Always the problem. Like like, like they play Sunday at like 5 o'clock tomorrow. I don't want to go. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, you are uh, listening to the Weekend Watchdogs. Mike Silva, Joe Bono, taking you all the way up to noon. The number is 646-716-8187. We'll be right back. I'm extremely confident. I mean, I don't want to put the team in a position, uh, you know, I'm going to go out and hurt the team or, or, you know, turn the ball over or try to try to be a hero, um, you know, because something is compromised. I, I want to go out there and help the team. And so if I can do that uh, without putting me or the team in a compromising position, then I will. And I, I think I'm going to be able to do that. Just watching him practice, you know, he told me he was feeling better yesterday, but I couldn't see anything, so that didn't matter. But watching them practice today, I think it'll be okay. It's hard when you got to uh, make a change at, at that position, just because there's so much that goes into it, and you know, really, the, um, the chemistry between skilled players and quarterback takes time. So to have him, uh, you know, to show the toughness that he has to just stay in there with the thumb issue um, is going to be big for us. Mike Silva, Joe Bono, Weekend Watchdogs, and joining us uh, for a few here, talk a little bit about the Jets, is uh, Seth Walder of the New York Daily News. Seth, Mike, and Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Not bad. Interesting uh, game in Oakland. Uh, I, I was saying earlier, um, you know, you, you, you don't want to say the same old Jets, but, um, you know, this Patrick goes down with the uh, the thumb, uh, you have the bad defensive showing. It looked a lot like the Rex Ryan Jets on Saturday, uh, Sunday. Yeah, that's right. You know, it did sort of, it did sort of have that familiar feel, I guess. You know, I think it's not really the same old Jets because <clears throat> we've just seen for too long, you know, too too many games this year that Todd Bowles has turned this team around. But uh, certainly for that one Sunday in Oakland, I, I, you did get that sense. And Seth, what are your expectations for Fitzpatrick? I know it's kind of a, a different type of injury, uh, you know, one that probably some people were going, hmm, do you have to really sit out the game? This, you know, do you not 
have, you know, he can't come in based upon this injury. It's more of a pain tolerance type injury. Just being around the team and talking with Ryan this week, are, are any concerns about um, him getting through this game, uh, you know, with either with of them? Yeah, I think he should be, I think he should be all right. You know, I mean, I think, uh, don't get me wrong, you know, I, I think that he is going to be dealing with, you know, some, just a little bit of, uh, you know, discomfort or it'll just feel a little out of the ordinary for him. But, uh, I, you know, it's his left hand, and I think that, um, by and large, I think he, he should be okay. You know, if he gets hit, certainly that could, you know, that could cause issues. But I think, um, I, I, you know, I would expect that Ryan Fitzpatrick ought to be, you know, pretty pretty much the same guy out there. The only thing, you know, perhaps he reigns in the, the scrambling just a little bit. Um, but, you know, by and large, I think you're going to see the same guy. This Jaguar team that the Jets are facing, you know, I think just historically people look at the Jaguars as just a downtrodden team. Um, but uh, especially offensively this year, they have some weapons. Blake Bortles has really stepped up in the second year. Allen Robinson, Allen Hearns um, as wide receivers. So do you think this offense does pose problems? I mean, they're playing into the Jets' strength, which is their secondary, but do you think the Jets have some problems with the Jaguar offense on Sunday? No, not really. I mean, you know, I think, uh, okay, yeah, you know, the Jaguars are a little bit better than they, they have been in the past. But, you know, let's be honest. I mean, this is not a very good football team. Uh, and so, you know, in relative to the other offenses that they're going to face, you know, they face around the league, there's, there's, there's nothing um, – necessarily to write home about. I think this is going to be a big bounce back game for the Jets' defense. I would expect them to play well. I think Bowles was very upset with how they played last week, and I really do think they're going to turn it around this this time. Is that the biggest difference, Seth, to you? Is that, you know, under Rex, you know, it was always kind of, ah, you know, we'll go out and get them. You know, Todd Bowles seems to be totally different, seems to be ready to hold these guys accountable. And when they make mistakes, even when they win, you know, he's, He's looking to correct them right away, and it just seems like you have a little bit more confidence that they could move forward from this stuff, and it's not going to snowball, maybe like in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think that I think you kind of get that sense. I mean, it, you know, it's hard it's hard to tell, you know, just to some degree, um, you, you know, how much it was Rex, but I, I I I do think that this is also just a better football team than they've had in the last couple of years, and a better defense. So. Well, you know, I just believe that they're at, and they have a higher skill level. So to me, I just look at it as they played well in their first six games. They played very poorly in their seventh game. I'm trusting six games worth of data rather than just the one game, even though it's the most recent one. So I just believe that they are still an elite defense, and I wouldn't expect anything less from them, to be honest. Weekend Watchdogs, Joe Bona, Mike Silva, Seth Walder of the New York Daily News covers the Jets is our guest. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Seth, Seth Walder, N-Y-D-N. And, you know, Mike and I were just talking about before you joined us that, you know, despite these hiccups the last two games and despite the defense not forcing turnovers, what they did so well um, in the first five games of the year, I look at their schedule, Seth, I don't know how this team does not, you know, finish with mm-hmm. 10 wins and make the playoffs. And with New England so far in front and, you know, really not thinking that the division was going to be a real chance after they lost that game a couple of weeks ago. I think the Jets are in the same position they were even before this two-game losing streak in terms of what my expectations were them at the end of the year. Yeah, I, I agree with you in that, you know, really that schedule is so soft, and it's just hard to imagine them not playing well against a lot of these teams. I mean, you know, looking at, 
teams like the Jaguars, teams like the Texans. I mean, it's like their tough games relatively are against like the Bills and the Giants. I mean, I, I really don't, there's not a lot of teams you're scared of. You know, you, you, they're going to face Dallas with Romo back. Okay, they're, obviously they're going to face New England. Okay, but you know, realistically, uh, the Jets ought to get they ought to get to the playoffs. If they don't, they'll probably only have themselves to blame. If if Fitzpatrick can't go, I mean, he's got the ligament issue. We don't know what the situation is completely from a health standpoint. You have confidence that in that statement with uh, Geno or Petty as the as the quarterback. I know he put up some good numbers, but by all look, you know, it wasn't a great performance by Geno Smith on Sunday. No, well, I mean, I think I think you know Ryan, Fitzpatrick's going to play. I mean, uh, there's not really any question about that. Uh, you know, if he were to get hurt or something in the middle of the game, it would be Geno Smith. Do I think that? No, I, I don't. I don't. I don't think, think there's any reason to believe that Geno Smith is better than he's shown. I mean, you have basically two years of sample that shows you that that he's going to certainly at times make some impressive throws. He's obviously got um, the arm strength and all of that, and he, and he can and he can run. But the reality is, Geno Smith's decision making has always been questionable, and I, I can't. I mean, until you see otherwise, it's hard to imagine thinking that he would ever, be, you know, that he'd be the answer. What do you think the identity of this Jets offense is right now? Because you know, with the added weapons and Fitzpatrick being able to throw, you know, throw the ball and have really good games, getting the ball to Marshall and Eric Decker, um, is this identity still a run-first team? You think as we kind of move into the winter months, are they just going to rely? I know Ivory's been very quiet, a little banged up the last couple of weeks. This team is very good when he runs over for 100 yards. Are we going to see the Jets kind of transition even more so to a run-first offense? You think in the coming weeks? Yeah, I think they're going to get back to that get back to that run-first mentality. Ivory's obviously been huge for them, you know, and it's been critical when they've been able to get him going because of some game, you know, game situations last week. They had to basically abandon the run. Uh, but I think uh, I certainly believe you asked me about the identity of offense. I think it, it certainly is run first, and, and, and you want to let Fitzpatrick manage the game, but you don't want him throwing the ball 50 times. You don't want him, you know, heaving it downfield constantly. Uh, Ivory is really in the offensive line. That's, that's the key, key to this offense. Seth, it's been such a top-heavy league. You know, let's all agree that the Patriots are gone. I don't think they're, you know, I don't think the Jets are going to catch them. But you look at the wild cards. You had Oakland. You got the Jets. I know Pittsburgh. You know, has got Roethlisberger back. Who knows what Buffalo and Rex? Uh, you know, my, Miami's come on. Kansas City's underachieved. Um, you know, even on a, you know, I know Jacksonville's not in it, but they're not, com- you know, completely out of it. It's been odd how bunched up you have a, all these teams, and then you have the top-heavy teams. What are you seeing out there? Is the league, like everyone says, that bad, or just an anomaly right now? As we try to, the, the season tries to find its way, and, and there's some separation that naturally occurs as you get towards week ten, eleven, twelve, so on. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, I think obviously as the season goes on, you'll probably get a little bit more. Um, I think we'll be able to see a little bit more of a spread, just you know, mathematically, you, you would think so. Um, but I, I would. You know, it's it's hard to tell. I think a lot of it, you know, could just be, you know, has to. I would think has to do with um, just you know the, the the good teams playing, you know, playing poor teams and and stuff like that. You got you know, the Patriots, you know, not having to face 
um, a whole hell of a lot of uh, tough competition. Um, you know, if you look at their schedule, it's you know tougher than the Jets, but not by much. Um, and uh, it, it's just interesting. I, I agree with you. It's been fascinating to see uh, over the first few weeks um, the way that it's kind of stratified. But um, yeah, I, I, I can't I can't, tell, I can't look into my crystal ball and tell you, but I, I will be interested to see how that plays out through the rest of the year. Seth, final question. I talked about the Jacksonville offense being much improved, uh, putting up their best offensive numbers really since 2007 behind Blake Bortles. Team has not won on the road uh, in quite some time. 12-game road losing streak for Jacksonville. You seem confident the Jets are going to win this game and win this game comfortably, correct? Yeah, I do, yeah. Did you have a prediction of the numbers? Are they going to cover that 7.5? Yeah, <laughs> We're about to do our pick know, segment. Yeah, you know, I... I generally don't like to take day with a, a number like seven and a half, but uh, I will in this case just because you know if I'm if I'm if I'm going to a number, I've been thinking about it, kind of kicking around. I'm thinking something like twenty-seven ten Jets. I, I believe this will be a big bounce back uh, across the board for Dan Green. Seth, as always, we appreciate you taking a few minutes here on a Saturday. Uh, enjoy the game. Let's catch up as the season goes on. Okay, my friend. All right, thanks, guys. Seth Wolder. You can check him out on Twitter at. Seth Walder, NYBN. Interesting. No a lot more no confident than I am. Mm-hmm. No panic. Seth was cool to borrow that old, was it that Stuart Scott phrase? He's cool as the other side of the pillow. That's what I would use to get uh, to describe Seth Walder. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll return. Picks. We'll get Mojo's uh, take. Um, and I know he'll be doing some sort of uh, event at Risky. Big game for Mojo at Whiskey River. Uh, Redskins uh, are in New England taking on the Patriots. So, and if you want to uh, give us a call, the number is 646-716-8187. You are listening to the Weekend Watchdog, Mike Silva, Joe Bono. We'll be right back. Legendary Boston Globe columnist Bob Ryan joined the Weekend Watchdog. Is the game worse? Is it different? You know, what is your opinion on where the NBA has gone? It's still the best basketball in the world with the, with the best athletic basketball players, and the coaching is phenomenal. Uh, it, it, the defenses are sophisticated. It's hard to score in this league now. What I don't like about the game and why I don't like it as much as I once did, but I still like it, is the, uh, the, the three-point shot has completely taken over the game. It's distorted the game at every level. I, 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 would, I, I know it's, we're never going to get rid of it, but I, I just don't think it's been a good thing for the game, uh, and it's caused the style of play. Uh, and that it's not as enjoyable as it once was. The, the, the disappearance of true post people uh, is, a, is a problem. Uh, and the biggest, biggest thing is the, the lost art of the true fast break. To hear guests on the NBA and more, tune in to the Weekend Watchdogs every Saturday, 10 to noon on Blog Talk Radio. We're back. Mike Silva, Joe Bono, Weekend Watchdogs. Uh, final segment here as uh, we make our way into the uh, 12 o'clock hour. And joining us from his humble abode down in North Carolina, does uh, a lot of work covering the Redskins, has a great show at uh, a bar called Whiskey River, it covers the Panthers, does a whole bunch of stuff. Our buddy Jim Mojo Morrison. Mojo, Mike and Joe on. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing good. It's actually studying women's basketball right now. I start uh, my play-by-play gig at uh, Winthrop University next week. I'll be in Oklahoma uh, next Friday night for the opening of uh, women's basketball. 
uh, as winter takes on the Sooners. So been doing a lot of studying. Uh, then I go to Duke next Sunday for another game. So getting all this women's basketball stuff, a lot of rule changes this year in the women's game. So doing NFL, high school, it, it, it's been a crazy time, but a lot of fun. Uh, you know, and, of course, keeping up with our, our New York Jets up there in New York and uh, the Mets uh, disappointing uh, outing in the World Series. Uh, it's been a very hectic but uh, fun time down here. Now, Joe, I have a feeling Mojo's angered Mets fans, Mojo's angered Jets fans, Mojo's angered Panthers fans, he's angered Redskins fans. What are the odds that women's basketball fans now are the next on the list here? Yeah, I give them about one half before they start to get uh, annoyed. They're doing play-by-play, so you really can't, you know, there's not really a lot of opinions doing play-by-play, but I'm sure Mojo when you do, in. When you do some of these small... Um, high play-by-play gigs, the families are all in on listening. And if you are just a hint critical of, you know, little Susie there and her (laughs) lack of uh, range in our 33-point shot. You're you're so spot on. I, you know, I did Syracuse women's uh, back uh, in the day, and I never forget getting called into the coach's office before the pregame interview that I did uh, before every game, and getting uh, yelled at for a couple of things. And, and it wasn't even me that said the uh, the uh, comments on the air. It was the guy that was doing uh, the other, the play-by-play in color, you know, because he used to split it. And uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting. They they very temperamental. Some of the people. Uh, that, uh, you know, and the things that they come at you for uh, when you're doing play-by-play. Last night I was criticized because I wasn't tweeting enough while I was doing the the radio. I was doing a radio broadcast getting ready to write a game story for the local paper for a high school game, and some guy complained that I didn't tweet enough updates from the game. I said, well, turn on the radio, and you'll get all the updates you need. And, uh, you know, it, it's amazing what people will, will find hang-ups on uh, when you try to do this job. Yeah. Joe, you sound like you had fa- friends and families of some play-by-play gig back in the day that came after you. It sounds like you had a personal experience on that. Um, when I did minor league baseball, I had um, the families Cyclones? of the backup the backup catcher. No, no, the uh, New Haven uh, County Cutters of the Can-Am uh, League. The backup catcher, I, I, there was a tendency that when the backup catcher was in, teams would run more, and I would just they don't like that. belabor that point, I guess, a little bit, that uh, – when this guy was in, we'd see them run more because he has doesn't have the same arm strength as the everyday catcher. So you know, God forbid, God forbid that you are uh, you are truthful. All right, I am running away with these picks. Fourteen, seven, and three. Since I'm the leader right now, I'm going to let you pee on Joe. Why don't you kick it off with your uh, your picks here? As you, what is your record now, Joe? <laughs> I am uh, 13 and 11. So you're not exactly running right, so, away. Yeah, I was going to say, Mike, I'm, I'm, four, I'm 14 and 10 after last week. So, uh, you know, for, you have, we're, we're basically within uh, victory. You have a lot of pushes on your uh, ledger there that have uh, allowed us to uh, come up on the victory total. we got to yeah, dig into those. we got to maybe go back and, and uh, ensure that there weren't half points here, half points there that were uh, shaved. No, I have. Uh, I have. Mike Silva. Anyway, uh... I'll go with a 2-1 again last week. I need that 3-0 week to kind of vault me into the first-place discussion. Uh, but I like the Pittsburgh Steelers. They are four-and-a-half-point favorites at home against the Oakland Raiders. Listen, I know Le'Veon Bell is now out for the year. I own him in fantasy. I am devastated. I had D'Angelo Williams, dropped him, couldn't get him back. But he's been good as his replacement throughout the year. 
Uh, I think people are going to be on the Raiders a lot, especially after the win against the against the Jets. But I think Ben Roethlisberger in his second game back, this is going to be a pass-first team from here on out. And I think the Raiders, who can't guard the pass, 31st-ranked pass defense in the league, a lot of Antonio Bryant, a lot of uh, Marcus Wheaton and Martavius Bryant. So I like the Steelers, minus four and a half. Um, I love the Jets. I'm with Self Walder here. Jets by seven at home against the Jaguars. I think a big comeback game for the Jets and their defense. I think the Jaguars' offense is certainly improved, but I think Blake Bortles can still make mistakes. And again, I think their strength is the wide receiving core, but that's the Jets' strength in the in the secondary with Revis uh, and Cromartie and and, and Trine. So uh, I like the Jets plus seven. Love the Jets plus seven. And then my luck pick, um, I'm going to go with the Carolina Panthers. You know why? This, this is a kind of a pick I don't normally make because, I, you know, why not pick the Packers, the two-and-a-half-point favorites? Uh, you think Carolina's going to lose eventually, but just the Panthers just keep on finding a way. It's not like Cam Newton's an MVP candidate, but they just keep on playing sound, fundamental football on both ends of the ball. Uh, Rodgers struggled last week. I think he's going to struggle again this week, and I like the Panthers. They're my luck pick, getting two-and-a-half at home against the Packers. Mojo, why don't you take it away? God, Joe, you and I agree on a, on a bunch of stuff. I didn't pick the Panthers, but I think that they're going to they're going to win again. I like the Steelers as well this week. Uh, I think that uh, the Steelers coming off of a loss uh, last week against the Bengals, Roethlisberger very annoyed with himself for his performance. Uh, now without Bell, you're going to see them throwing the ball all over the ballpark. Raiders coming across country, playing a 10 a.m. game. Everybody in love with them after they dissected the Jets secondary. I, I'm going to go with the Steelers as well uh, this week. Uh, another team that I think is uh, not getting enough love, I've gone with them two weeks in a row. They came through with an outright victory in Atlanta uh, last week. I'm going to take Tampa Bay uh, this week, uh, getting two and a half against the New York football giants. Interesting stat, the New York football giants have been outgained by 600 yards uh, this year, and the only reason why they are where they are is they have a plus 10 turnover ratio. Uh, Tampa goes home. They've, they've played two good games in a row. Uh, I, I think that they get, get it done against the Giants this week at home. And then my other game, I was going to go with the Vikings, uh, but I'm going to switch it off to the Cowboys uh, in the Sunday night game. They've got to win a game uh, without Tony Romo. There's so much love for the Eagles that I, I, I don't understand. Uh, Dallas is going to be able to control the uh, line of scrimmage with their running game. Castle has settled in. Dallas covered for me last week against the uh, Seahawks at home. Almost won the game outright. I'm going to take the three points in the division rivalry, and I'm going to say Dallas uh, gets that first win uh, uh, without Romo and uh, goes off and uh, beats up Chip Kelly, perhaps the second most overrated coach in the NFL behind the defensive genius of Western New York. And let me uh, continue my run here, and I'll start with who I love. I love the Denver Broncos on, well, that's going to be a late game. That's going to be the four, uh, 425 game. Over Indianapolis, Andrew Luck's questionable. C.J. Anderson looks like he might be on the way back. I know everybody still thinks Ronnie Hillman's the start. I have a feeling C.J. Anderson's going to reemerge before the year is out. Denver, the best defensive team in the league. I, I, I think that uh, five and a half, no problem that they cover that. I, I like the, you know what, Mojo, this is right up your alley. At Whiskey River, they'll be cheering me. I like the Redskins. They're minus 14 against New England. I know, I think they're going to lose. I, don't I, think I, I like them too, Mike. Uh, Brady's 96-15 and 15 at home, but uh, Redskins are healthy, and uh, Patriots sometimes don't always cover these big spreads. 
that's a big spread. So I'm going to take the Redskins and the 14 points against uh, New England. And here's my lucky. And I know all you guys, I think I'm crazy. I'm going to take Jacksonville in the 7.5. They're going to lose to the Jets. This is not going to be as much of a blowout as Seth Walder thinks. It's going to be a late run that the Jets are going to have to make to beat them. Blake Bortles could score. TJ Yeldon could run. The secondary, I didn't like what I saw out of the Jets last week. I could see Alan Hearns and Robinson putting up some hurt on the Jets. I'm going to take Jacksonville in the 7.5. And, and those are my Week 9 picks. Mojo, give us a quick 30-second uh, synopsis of what's going on in your world. I know you're annoying women's, uh, fans of women's basketball. But I'm sure you have other things that uh, you know you have going on. Well, I start. World. I start my. I, I have a pretty good. Uh, you know, to travel the next two weeks. I go to Oklahoma. I go to Duke. Then I spend a uh, four days in Ohio doing a, a, a tournament the following weekend. Uh, high school football playoffs start next week. Uh, we finished up the regular season. I can't believe twelve weeks of high school football. Uh, college football is getting uh, really hot and heavy. And then, of course, the Panthers are undefeated. I was at the Monday night game in the Westwood One booth. Uh, with my old college roommate Howie Denneroff, got a chance to you know hang out with Boomer and Kevin Harlan and uh, you know catch the game and saw Mike Tarico of ESPN, another Syracuse guy. So it was a fun night up there um, on Monday night, and uh, you know lots of stuff happening, and uh, you know and of course keeping my uh, toe in the New York football scene uh, with the Jets. It's going to be an interesting game uh, tomorrow. I think the litmus test on Todd Bowles on how they respond after the last two weeks. Uh, it's going to be out there. Uh, Jets are very vulnerable, though, with their linebackers right now on the edge. So let's see how they correct those problems. If they do, uh, they should be fine tomorrow. If they don't, it could be another uh, grinder for the Jets at home. Mojo, have a good show at uh, Whiskey River. And, Joe, another successful show. I will be off next week. You're more than welcome to take the baton. I have uh, important things to take care of next Saturday. So the, the public Would you like to – is there anything more you can divulge? I mean, I tell I'm you, when Montauk. I'm not going to miss, I'm going to Montauk. miss a show, okay. I'm going to Montauk with my girlfriend for her birthday. That's it. we got a, a one-day a one uh, room in Montauk, get a chance to get away. You know, it's been a stressful October between the playoffs and the World Series. Couldn't do that Lack on Sunday? Sleep. No, I'm going to do that. I have to do it on Saturday. Sunday's not a good day to do it. So, Why, are you going to miss me? It doesn't sound like you're going to miss me. You yelled at me for the entire first 30 minutes of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure what I want to do. Maybe I should. Uh, maybe I should do what you're doing. Maybe I should just come to Montauk with you. I'm, I'm going. I, I don't want anybody involved with the radio or my. This is a chance for me to get away from everything. Are you, are you inviting yourself? First of all, it's not cheap even in the off season for Montauk, and you're an El Cheapo when it comes down to it. You willing to pay six hundred dollars for the night in Montauk? That's about what it costs. Six hundred dollars for the night. Yeah, you got a house. Price. A suite. What did she get you for your birthday in January? Uh, well, what will she get you your birthday in January? I don't know. I mean, you're setting the bar pretty uh-huh. high. And this is right around Christmas time. So, like, you know, mm, like $600 sweet. Now on Christmas, you're going to have to take a step back. Well, you know what? When you're living in the world of Mike Silver practicality, I'm like the closer that always finds a way to get it done. Let's put it that way. When it comes to relationships, I'm the closer who finds a way to get it done. Unless Terry Collins, you know, brought you in with, you know, two runners on. Every I'll still, time. let me tell you, I had a couple of bases loaded, no out jams in my life, my friend. And I'm still here, I'll tell you that. But those were sweaty saves, I can tell you that. I wasn't convinced. 
Anyway, I want to thank Seth Walder of the New York Daily News, Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal, Ethan Levy of the Gotham Sports Network. Great, uh, great guest. Uh, check out whether or not you agree whether a hot dog is a sandwich or not. I mean, one of the many interesting pieces of content on the Gotham Sports Network. Uh, if you want to listen to the show live or replay, go to weekendwatchdogs.com. Send us a tweet at Mike Silver Media at jbono611. And check out the Facebook page, the Weekend Watchdogs Facebook page, and the show free on iTunes. Joe, hopefully you get a chance to do the show next week. If not, I will see you in two weeks. Be well, everybody, and uh, enjoy the Week 9 games. Enjoy your sweet, Mike.